Life Remixed. Mark Wilkinson here. I hope you're all good. Uh, it's uh, an amazing uh, evening tonight. Uh, this is uh, our monthly episode of uh, Straight Talking. Uh, tonight is is quite incredible, to be honest. The way it's actually come about is a story in itself. Uh, some of you who um, follow my my regular streams and my regular lives around Life Remixed and the book and everything else uh, will have heard me talk about the law of attraction quite a lot. And the law of attraction kind of like just brings people together in, in different ways about the ways you think about uh, and I've got a friend and a, and a good uh, coaching client as well called Kev, and he's in Qatar, um, working over there in health and safety. And he suggested one day when we were on a call together, he said, have you seen Last Breath on Netflix? And I said, no. Uh, and he said, um, oh, you should give it a go. It's about this bloke. And he told me his story. And I was just like, it does sound pretty interesting. And it was a Saturday afternoon. And I remember uh, there was no football on the TV. And, uh, uh, and Emma was upstairs doing something. I thought, oh, I've got nothing better to do. I've got nothing better to do. So I know what I'll do. I'll, uh, I'll stick this uh, documentary on. Uh, I started watching it and it really did uh, start to completely uh, blow my mind. Uh, I started to watch it and this whole diving incident and everything that went on uh, in the documentary Last Breath on Netflix, it was incredible. So there I am uh, watching it. And it made me think of a good friend of mine, a good friend of mine uh, called uh, George Jones, who I know had made uh, a change into uh, into diving from being a uh, DJ and record producer and possibly possibly uh, remarking to himself that he was kind of a big deal once. Um, but I'm not sure about that. He's laughing. I can see him. It's fine. Uh, so the point is, is that uh, that uh, I messaged George uh, on that afternoon. And I said, George, this last breath, this is amazing. And by the way, you owe me a phone call about the gig that we're doing together in the summer in Norwich. But this last breath documentary, this is, this is blowing my mind. And I know you're involved in this in somehow, you know, it's how you do it at Facebook, isn't it? You kind of keep in touch with people. Um, and uh, you're involved in this somehow. And, and he, George just sent me like a one line about it. It's just incredible. He just said, Oh, yeah. He said, Chris Lemons is sitting three feet away from me. Uh, <laughs> I was just like, what? And slowly but surely, uh, through the uh, the goodwill of uh, three uh, fantastic gentlemen, we've ended up with tonight's straight talking. Uh, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, it's going to be a complete review of the background of what these uh, saturation divers uh, actually do. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the documentary. Uh, and then, of course, we're going to talk about the incident itself. Uh, and the outcomes of it as well. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be a great evening. I really appreciate you uh, you all being here with us. Uh, and I'm going to stop waffling now, and I'm going to start to bring some people into the room with me. So uh, I'm going to bring in uh, the uh, the star of the the unwitting star uh, of the documentary first, because uh, I think he needs maximum time on screen. He's an absolute lovely gentleman. I'm very glad he survived as well because he's here to join us tonight. So uh, here he is. Hi, Chris. Hello, Mark. How you doing? Yeah, I'm very good. Thanks very much. More importantly, how are you? <laughs> yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah, well, well, just while I had my vaccine, uh, my first jab yesterday, so a bit under the weather today. But apart from that, all is well. Yeah. All right. Well, you're going to style it out, and you're going to be with us tonight. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a great interview. Uh, yeah, thank you for being, thank you for being here. I really do appreciate it. Um, uh, next up uh, is uh, the big deal himself. Uh, is uh, my uh, my good friend. I've known him for 25 years. And somehow, not sure how, uh, actually Chris's dive supervisor. Um, yeah, <laughs> look, at, look at the eyebrow. I can see the eyebrow there. Uh, here he is, uh, the man himself, George Jones. Hi, George. Hey, Chris, yeah. Mark, you right? Yeah, yeah, really good, mate. Really good. How are you? 
Well, who would have thought this would have come together? <laughs> it's a it's a fascinating uh, it's a fascinating uh, situation that we've brought this together, and I, I'm really grateful to you, George, as well, because I know uh, you clearly you know you're Chris's supervisor, so you uh, obviously kind of like give him a nudge to do this as well. So uh, I'm joking, chaps. But anyway, thank you. <laughs> uh, and last, thanks for mentioning the people. I think we're looking for yeah. <laughs> George, what did you say there? I said thanks for mentioning the big deal comment, which was uh, came from Chris, if I remember right. Yeah, that was that was completely fictitious. I will I'll exonerate George right there. Yeah, that was uh, all my doing. Sorry. I tell you what, though, it's very very funny. I, I love I love I love chats with Sister Uh But last but not least, uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, I've only known him the last few months, but he's become a, a really great friend. Uh, is Kev here in Qatar? He's joining us late in the, into into the evening. How are you, Kev? I'm all right, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I see you've had a nice haircut just for the for the occasion. Just for the occasion. Had to we're still on lockdown, so I had to get somebody to come over the house to do it. <laughs> well, they've done a lovely job, mate. They've done a lovely I job. I know, I do look pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if you do say so yourself. Uh, anyway. <laughs> So, uh, we've got a few people that are going to join us throughout the evening. Uh, first first one, I don't know who they are because sometimes they haven't logged into StreamYard, uh, but we've just got Chris Lemon, what a, what a legend. Uh, so, that's a nice start. Uh, and good evening. Uh, and that's, I would agree with that straight away. <laughs> Chris Lemon, you absolute legend. So, that's amazing. So, um, a, little bit of, a little bit of background first and foremost before we get into anything else. A little bit of background about what you guys exactly do. Because, George, I'll come to you first. I've seen uh, you post some stuff on Facebook over the last 10 years, uh, but, you know, didn't really appreciate what, what, you, uh, what you went through or, or how you even got into it or anything like that. So give us a little bit of background, George. I don't think anyone realises, really, you know, you, you can tell people what, exactly what you do and it doesn't really mean anything. You know, we work offshore, we do you know, sort of deep water diving as opposed to, you know, the shallow scuba stuff. It's living in uh, chambers for, well, in the North Sea up to 28 days at a time, really confined space, diving out of diving bells, um, you know, doing oil, uh, oil and gas work. And it, it doesn't really mean anything to anyone. You can't explain it. Um, you can show videos, um, etc., but... Essentially, we work in the oil and gas industry, mm. um, doing maintenance, repair, installation, uh, taking out old stuff, you know, decommissioning, basically anything that's subsea or below the surface in the North Sea to do with oil and gas, that's done by the people like us, divers, mostly saturation, which is the deep, the, the deep well, generally the deeper stuff, although we do work quite shallow these days. But generally, it's for the deeper water stuff in the North Sea. And so we're talking about the, this particular incident was about 100 metres or 300 feet. Uh, is, that, is that the average you would go to? I mean, is that, like, you know, is that deep or is that, I, I don't know, give some perspective. Well, I mean, North Sea, we work in the southern sector, which is sort of off Norfolk, uh, Great Yarmouth, quite a lot at the moment. That's, you know, really shallow. And as, you know, we're sort of diving 25, 30 metres, which is really shallow. 25 metres often at the moment. Um, in fact, most of the southern sector is, you know, between sort of 25 and 40, roughly. Then as you as you move further north, um, you know, it, it sort of shells off and gets deeper until we get up to off Shetland, which is 150, you know, 50, 60, 70 metres. Um, 
I'd say average is sort of, you know, between 70 and 120 metres, really. I suppose that's average. But like I said, our company I work for at the moment is doing a lot of decommissioning work in the southern sector. Mm -hmm. So that, consequently, is mostly shallow and, and tidal. It's, you know, strong currents and usually terrible visibility. So, you know, you, you're working and you can't actually see, you know, often can't see what you're doing. Well, I can because I'm in. I'm on the ship in dive control. <laughs> we're going to come to that. We're going to come to that. Just a quick question about the chambers before we move on. You do 28 days in the chamber and then you do the dive. Is that correct? No, you 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 compress to the basically it's you compress to the pressure that you would be diving at essentially, right. and that's the pressure you live at in the chamber. So yeah. we're with scuba diving, you'd have. Uh, usually have a decompression as you come out. With saturation diving, you have no decompression at all for the whole, well, say 23 or 4 days, whatever. Uh, and then you have one long, slow decompression at the end. Uh, you know, 100 metres will be roughly 4 days, uh, and it's a, a long decompression. So you just have one. So that just, what that enables you to do is the lads are doing 6 hours in the water at a time, Mm. Uh, doing an eight-hour dive, usually about seven hours, generally. Um, but you're doing the, you're diving about six hours, well, maximum six hours each dive. So, with no decompression uh, penalties at all. So that's why saturation diving means you can dive 24 hours a day on a on a vessel like the one that we work on, and it is 24 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's literally non-stop usually. And, uh, and just, I mean, it's not all glamour, George, clearly. Yeah. Well, they sell it as, you know, when you do your diving courses, you're going to be, you know, travel the world, and, um, but that's just bollocks. It's not <laughs> like that at all. In fact, <laughs> when you're up to your, up to your bum in mud, and, you know, it, it doesn't feel very glamorous. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure the forty grand. I'm sure the forty grand a month takes the edges off. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> the money's on. What did you say? I said that to you the other day. You said I haven't taken a pay cut. Anyway, so uh, there's, a few, there's, a few, <laughs> there's a few there's a few things popping up here as well. So John, uh, good good health and safety guy, works with a Heathrow. Just says evening all. Looking forward to the chat. Uh, he's on YouTube. Uh, Jason saying good evening. Uh, Steve says George definitely looks the best. Yeah. Um, Sure. One of the lads we work with, Steve. Good diver, Steve. Very, very odd-looking bloke. <laughs> Hang on, it's just this. Look. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, Steve. I'm sure. Uh, it's great to have you here, mate. Thanks for being here. Uh, someone's asked, "What's the deepest you go to?" Can you give us a a, a quick run on that? Um, we've done some work in Israel and Egypt, which is sort of. You know, the 220, 230-meter mark. Um, wow. But that's, you know, it, it really, really, once you go past 190 or 200 meters, things really, it, it's a lot harder. Um, the environment you live in is, is much tougher. Um, it's much harder to get your breath back and all sorts of physiological things that make that uh, deeper stuff. But in answer to your question, you know, 220, 230, you know, that's really, there has been deeper stuff and there's been a lot of experimental stuff and there's been diving in Brazil, which is a lot deeper, but that isn't, you know, that's not the norm. No. And, uh, and just before we kind of move into other areas, uh, 
just just tell the world how, how we kind of know each other. And, and before I, before you do that, uh, Michelle says uh, she's fascinated already, which is great. Thanks, Michelle. And Chris hasn't said anything yet, so that's good. It's just you, George. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, this is a funny story because your your story is, you know, you were uh, let's just call it a superstar DJ, as we all know you were or are were. Um, <laughs> I sort of came about, we put on parties and produced, I had a studio um, in the early 90s. We got, well, you know, we started releasing vinyl and records and you came up to play at some of, well, uh, my best friend Jay, Jay Patel, um, his partner Bunny, so probably uh, pretty much instigated the club scene in the, pretty much the whole of the east of England, I would have said, sort of Norfolk, etc. The way we met was because you were playing at one of those things, probably at one of Jay's events with Rocky and the like. Yeah. Um, we produced some records together. So amongst, uh, you know, the social aspect of it, we actually got in the studio together. I think I engineered a couple of things which we were, uh, were released when they... I'll name, two, I'll, name, no, two, I'll name two straight yeah. away. Uh, Mono Rage uh, Groove Jet was one. Yeah, uh, that was on Azuli. And another one we did, uh, I think I did a remix of one of your tracks, Mark Wilkinson versus Junk 45. And I, yeah. forgot the, I forgot the acapella, but it was a little bit of way. So the Junk 45, I mean, I, we, we produced for a record company um, in Romford, the Stage One Music Company, and we did that for years. Um, and then I met Will, we did some breakbeat nights up in Norwich with, uh, again, with Jay. And we met uh, Will White from the Propeller Heads. Yeah, and we yeah. ended up doing a few projects together in the studio. So, yeah. And that was the Junk 45 part when we sort of did those projects on Kidology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but really, I think we spoke about this a few times over the years. I, I think I saw the writing was on the wall with the music industry. So yeah. small-time producers like us, which, you know, in... Oh, hang on, hang on. Kind of a big deal, I thought. Well, with you. <laughs> Keep going, but, but the reality of the music industry is it was never going to uh, supply a career, as in, well, more, let's just put it, I didn't want to be a skint musician. We're, you know, it's all well and good having a fantastic studio, but unless you're making money out of it. Um, yeah. And although we were DJing a lot, it, yeah. it wasn't ever going to be a career unless you're a Vici or, <laughs> you know, someone like that. So... That sort of brought me into diving purely because my family's in diving. They, well, my brother runs quite a big uh, inshore diving company. Probably one of the it's still one of the biggest sort of companies inshore. So I got involved with that and changed. I just thought that I could do that and still do music. Mm. So it sort of run concurrently. But unfortunately, when I say unfortunately, obviously fortunately, it sort of turned out I was all right at diving. So. Mm that kind of just took over in the end and obviously music industry has changed yeah. beyond recognition as you well know so absolutely it was the right move and a very good move but it's very similar or there's certainly connections to your story you know where you totally changed what you were doing because you had to obviously for health reasons and various other reasons but it's it's similar you know yeah, absolutely. I think you did your own life remix, which I, which I absolutely love. And I really appreciate you giving us that kind of overview there, uh, George, as well, and certainly talking about a, a bit about our history. Because, um, Chris, you, you basically had no idea that George was uh, 
was into like music and record production and anything like that because you work offshore and you said you don't really talk to each other that much well we do we do talk um you know i've probably known george since um well when i first met george he was uh he, he was a diver and i and i wasn't you know so he was you know indirectly if you like one of the people who sort of inspired me to to get into it in the first place because i used to see uh george and his like in the chambers and diving and you know i decided at some point that i wanted to follow suit and i think they probably turned up in you know nicer cars than i did on the key side as well but um yeah i, I think I mean, that must have been back in 2005 or something like that that i probably first yeah, met George earlier yeah something like that and um yeah and literally the day that he came across to me the other day and said oh you know this my friend mark uh, has seen the film it was the first time I, I i heard anything about his uh, his musical background so you'd have to ask him why he keeps it quiet but yeah it's, uh, it was great yes yeah, so i was straight off to to look you both up Thing is, I think I said, I said this to you the other day, Mark. I think the and Chris, you'll understand this is that you work offshore and, and you dive and you dive with people. You 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 kind of know them well, but there's a lot of people have a lot of different backstories and they have other things going on at home, different jobs, different businesses. You know, lots of the lads have got other businesses out of diving um, that they run while they're offshore. Um, you know, and, and things like being involved in music or clubs and, you know, the like is not something that you just offer up anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the sort of thing, all right, I'm George, oh, by the way, I used to do that. You know, you just don't do that, you know. So you, it sort of started coming out that there was a bit of history to it, but it didn't really come from me. It was sort of from other yeah. things. But the point is you work with people and, and you don't necessarily always get to know, you know, the full yeah. backstory. Sorry, Mark. I was just going to say, just briefly, you know, touching on the film quickly. You know, we, I know we're going to talk about Dave a bit later, but you know, Dave probably puts it quite well in the film. I think you know, he's, he has two, he has two personas almost. That he has home Dave, where he is father of two, and uh, you know, and a, and a lovely father, and then he has work Dave, where he's you know, a professional. And there's, there's a little bit of that as well, isn't there, George? You know, you want to maintain a professional decorum, don't you? I suppose so. Um, you know, some things maybe aren't discussed. Yeah. Yeah, and then it's different, sort of as you go you know, further up the ladder, whichever way you look at it. So now I'm supervising, you know, it, it's slightly different again, you know, because it's a, you have a different relationship with people once, you, once you're supervising, you know, because you're, you're in charge of so much as a, as a diet supervisor on a ship offshore, um, you know, and you, you do end up having a very different relationship with people because of that. So I've got a few more shouts to come out here. Um, uh, so Michael's just saying, that if you're watching on my personal profile, by the way, I can't put you on the screen. I don't know why that is, but I can see Emma, Michael, Jason Anker, MBE's watching us. Caroline Jackson's watching us. Loads of people uh, tuning in, watching us uh, live here as well. Uh, someone else just says, uh, Georgie boy. So uh, there you go, George. Uh, that's for you. Um, uh, so uh, we've got lots of lots of interest. Um, Chris, I'd really like to ask you, you know, how did you get into diving in the first place? What was the, what was the driver there, really? Um, apart from the apart from the nicer cars and everything else, you must have, I mean, Morag, Morag, your fiance at the time, but you're now wife, I presume. Oh yeah, I saw the marriage. Yes. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, you're good there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we need to talk about your comment on the, on, at the wedding as well. It's very funny about the kiss on the lips and all that. Anyway, uh, the point is, it's that, um, uh, you know, how did you get into it in the first place? What was the, what was the thing for you? 
Yeah, it is. I mean, it, no, I mean, what, what I describe is kind of it, really. There, um, you know, Dave, Dave and Duncan. You know, if you've seen the film, who, who are both involved, who've got slightly more romantic backstories than I have. They, uh, they both came into diving because it was their, um, you know, their passion, which is kind of what Morag infers in the film, was it? But that's probably not actually strictly true for me. Um, you know, Dave was a sort of scuba diving instructor out in Thailand, and Duncan's just been a, you know, a fan of Jacques Cousteau since he was a little boy, and um, you know, passionate about diving. And they both, yeah, they both sort of found a way to make their their passion their vocation, which is great, you know. And I, I, and I wish it was a bit more like that for me, but you know, I was um, I was a young man, sort of, you know, very early twenties, um, and maybe a bit lost, I suppose. As to what to, to do in, with my life um I didn't really have any particular direction and just got given a, a summer job almost you know um but that happened to be on the back deck of of a dive support vessel in fact the dive support vessel that uh, George was a diver on at the time and um so I used to sort of work out and uh, deliver deliver tools and um bits and bobs down to the divers using the cranes and um you know see all the equipment again that they used to use and that kind of thing so I got to see them firsthand and um yeah there was a sort of a bit of a I think, I guess, an epiphany at that point where I, I thought, you know, that, that's what I want to do. And, um, you know, I think life's a lot simpler, isn't it, when you've got a bit of direction and drive. And suddenly I found a, yeah, a sort of reason to, to push myself and find a way in life. So that's how I got into it, really. I, I sort of, you know, fe- fell into it, really, yeah. I mean, I, you basically found a purpose and you kind of, like, you, you followed that through and, and you got into it. Um, yeah. Because, you know, for me, I mean, you know, I, I didn't realise I, I didn't realise I had a claustrophobia problem until uh, until someone tried to put me in an MRI scanner, and I suddenly realised I was like, I don't like this at all. Now you, you told me earlier, Chris, you're six foot five, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're you're a big lad. Um, was the claustrophobia? I mean, did you have to overcome fears to be able to just like get you know do that? I mean, what was what was the process? Um, I don't think I've never had a fear of that really. I think that would be a serious hindrance. I'm yeah, sure George would agree as a serious hindrance in our career if you're claustrophobic because that is that's sort of not ideal. No, it's not <laughs> ideal. You'd have, you'd have a lot of work to do, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're literally living in a claustrophobic environment, and it's not just the not just the sense of confinement that you you have in those chambers. It's also the sense, you know, George sort of touched on the you know the the, the four or five days of decompression. But you know, the truth is that four or five days of decompression can't be circumnavigated. You know, so if your if your mother dies, or if your appendix bursts, or anything of that nature, uh, or anything in between, you still have to go through that. You know, that four or five days of decompression. So you need to be somebody who can psychologically deal with um, that sort of pressure. That you know, on, on day one when you you get into those chambers and the door is shut, there is no way out. You know, there's um there's just sort of slightly. It's definitely an overly overly flattering analogy with uh, you, you know that. Um, it's sort of quicker to get back from the moon, you know, somehow comparing us to astronauts, which is completely unfair because, you know, you need to be, you need to be able to tie your shoelaces to be an astronaut. <laughs> they, uh, you know, but that's the truth that, you know, it takes sort of three days to get back from the moon. Whereas, you know, in, if you're down at, you know, hundred plus meters, there is this unavoidable five days of decompression. So yeah, that, that part of things is claustrophobic and it's in a psychological sense. Um, but yeah, a lot of the work as well is, is in very dark, muddy water where you can't see your, your hand in front of your face. And, you know, you need to be somebody who can become comfortable with that. And uh, again, George will testify, you'll see divers, you know, who've been divers quite a long time, get into saturation diving and on their first trip to the bottom, they're like, they can be like lost souls because it could be a, a sort of intimidating and, um, lonely place to be if you're not sure of yourself and not comfortable in that sort of that sort of environment um so yeah uh, I, no, no, i'm lucky i suppose it's not something that's ever really really bothered me um i'm sure there are some divers who carry on with their careers even though it does but um yeah it's definitely definitely don't want to be claustrophobic that's for sure no, I'm certainly, I'm, 
with the with the um, you know you before you sort of do the deep diving your saturation diving course you, you've done other diving before that so you you've had a diving helmet on your head and you've been in horrible black water you know and all this stuff but it's such a big difference even though the diving aspect is you're underwater you've got a yellow helmet on your head but it's very very different when you're diving out of a diving bell and you, and you know that you know you can't just come out and uh, that's i think chris you know you just explained that quite well is that that is well a there's quite a bit of pressure on you to perform you know when you first get in you've got to be half you've got to be half decent otherwise you you, you can't hide you know there is nowhere to hide um everyone's watching you um there's screens all around the ship so every single person on the boat can see what's going on on the seabed um and it's the you know all those thoughts going on it's not just you know having the helmet on your head you, we, you you've already done that but it's for living in a chamber diving out of a bell as chris you know very well put it is you can't just come out so if you don't like it you know the well the, the commercial cost of you not liking it is massive i mean it's you know it's a multi million pound job you know every day or you know every it's a very very expensive business uh, to put three divers on the seabed the two divers you know and their their standby diver it costs a lot of money to do that so you, there's all sorts of aspects of not liking it you know you can't just say well i don't like it uh, i want to come out you know, it's yeah, I mean, at the, the end of the day, there's got to be a lot of training before you get anywhere near that. But I think, you know, lots of people that don't do diving or, or, or you know, don't even understand anything that we're talking about up to this point with saturation diving, lots of people will um, watch that, uh, the, the, the doc documentary, The Last Breath, and they will have, you know, anxiety issues around it where they're literally just watching it going, oh, my God, you can't see your hand in front of your face. And, I mean, I... I'm getting so many questions coming up here on the screen from every area. It's amazing. I want to get to you all. I promise you. I want to get to you all. There's so many questions that are coming up. Statements are coming up. Um, quite, quite a good one there straight away. Is um, maybe a silly question, but do you have Wi-Fi and internet in the chamber? And if not, what the hell do you do for entertainment? And is it an all-male crew? Uh, those, those questions. Those questions seem quite linked, don't they? You know what I mean. <laughs> One is inferring to the next, isn't it? <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Um, and, and then follow up is actually that's three silly questions. It's not a three silly question, but um, you know the chamber. What goes on in the chamber? You know, as, as in like you know you're living in there for a while. You know you've got music in there. You've got banging house music. I mean, what what's, what goes on? Um, yeah, well, I mean, essentially, you well on the ship that we work on the topaz at the moment. You've got six men in a chamber which is maybe seven feet diameter so you know it's a, a small space you've got a bunk and a, and a seating area as anyone that's seen you, you, you've seen the film but for those that haven't it's a really tiny space and you've got two teams of you've got six guys in there that'll be two teams of three three divers um it's you're on opposite you're on different shifts so uh, often you're being you're having to be so quiet because you're not trying to disturb the other team. Um, is you try not to disturb the other guys um, because you know that's really important that you you know so often you're being as about as quiet as you can possibly be, which is 
not easy. Um, but as far as internet, yes, so these days there is internet in the chambers. It's absolutely shit. <laughs> you know, you, you literally can barely send a WhatsApp. So, oh my God. you know, it sounds, oh, you must have really, really good internet. No, we, we have internet, but it's rubbish. That's just a fact. You're not, you're, not, you're not watching Netflix documentaries in there. You are not watching any. You're not watching YouTube in a really crap uh, format. You know, it's, it's really, really poor. But anyway. I need, to that, ask, I need to ask you another question. Have you got a bird outside your window? <laughs> what, what sort of bird? There are birds singing. I don't know. All I can hear is like a bird tweeting. I don't know which one of you's got something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Move on. So, um, <clears throat> so look, um, and then the, the other bit about the, in the documentary is about the helium voice because the helium voice, right? You start laughing because you hear it, and it's like it's really funny um, for about thirty seconds, uh, right, Chris? I mean, you know. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well. Exactly. I think um, that's right. It is. It is funny. It is funny. For, it is funny for a little bit. But it's. Um, it can become. Uh, we sort of forget we have it. To be honest, you in when you're in there. But um, it's when the, you know George touched a little bit on communications with home and stuff, and that can be an extremely frustrating thing when you're communicating at home because it's not just a silly squeaky voice. Because if you're if you're very shallow, if you're working at sort of ten or twenty meters or something like that. Um, you're fairly comprehensible, you know, so you can you can probably you can phone home and have a have a relatively decent conversation, and people at home get attuned to the to, the, to it as well. But once you get deep, you know, get towards a hundred meters, it's um, I'm not quite sure what it is. I think it's sort of your vocal cords being constricted or something like that. But you become very very difficult to understand. You know, almost unintelligible. So um, that can sort of render conversations difficult and frustrating. And particularly when you you know you're in there for a month at a time, so you you know life is going on. Uh, without you and there are still problems to be solved and you know you've still got to deal with a bank manager or you've still got to uh, you know you might have issues at home you know like we all do you know you know with the kids or the you know the wife or anything like that and um and that those things just tend to get exacerbated because you can't have a decent conversation and you, you know you just spend your whole time repeating yourself and that kind of stuff so yeah it can it's frustrating more than anything to be honest yeah yeah, I mean, like, little things you don't think about. Little things that you, you know, I've never thought about you trying to do your trying to do your internet banking or trying to sort something out with you know, while you're while you're deep under the under the North Sea. I've never thought of that. Um, no, that's amazing. Uh, that, that's amazing. So, um, like I said, there's been a, a you know real buzz about this. We've got so many people watching. It's amazing. Um, let's start to talk a little bit about the documentary in itself because I think that's the real the real meat of this. You know, we want to get into that. Um, <clears throat> So uh, the topaz is the is the vessel, um, and uh, George, you actually became a dive supervisor. You did all your deep sea diving. You became a dive supervisor the next time the topaz the topaz went out after this incident, correct? Yeah, well, I, I joined the topaz. Um, I think the incident was in the September, and I joined uh, at the end of the year of two thousand and twelve. Um, I did two two diving jobs on the topaz before I started training. I basically moved over to to that company to do my supervisor training and it's I was very, very lucky to be given that opportunity. because um, you know to get into supervising opportunity is a the main thing. Um, but you've also got to have backing of managers and companies and you know the, the managers on board the boat have got to be okay with it. Um, also, the supervisors that are going to let you, you know, that are going to train you have got to be okay with it. Well, they've got, of, George, they've got to believe in you, right? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they have to, 
you know, and I, and I'm sort of going involved with, you know, a bit of training now. Chris is, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on that anyway. But Chris is um, right at the start of supervisor training. Um, and it's, um, yeah, so anyway, getting back to that, I moved over, did two diving jobs um, on the Topaz, and then started my supervisor training, which was, you know, to 2013. Okay, um, so... So let me let me let me go to Chris then. So Chris, let's talk about the the documentary. Let's talk about you and the team. So you, Dave and Duncan, you Dave and Duncan go into the chamber. Um, had you dived with them much before? I think you were relatively inexperienced compared to them. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that is fair to say. Yeah, I mean, I'd been a, a diver for quite a while, but certainly in terms of that saturation diving, that type of diving, I was only about a year and a half, perhaps, into my sort of that career of that type of diving. Yeah, so um, yeah, and it's certainly in its infancy for me. Um, Dave had been yeah around quite a while. Duncan, a very very long time. Um, and Duncan, I'd spend a lot of time with. We when you first start, you sort of going into sat. Uh, into saturation you know they all they often sort of give you somebody uh, to go in with and Duncan was that was that man for me so he played a you know a big part in my career to that point I think most of the, my rotations into saturation have been have been with Duncan so he'd he'd been the sort of the hand on the tiller um guiding me through everything and um yeah he'd become a bit of a, a bit of a father figure I suppose you know he was he was he's fantastic at doing that and he was very supportive and and, and wasn't, he, wasn't he called the, wasn't he called the sat daddy or something yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. That was a new one on me, but yeah, that's right. So how Dave puts it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, so, it was true. True. Yeah. So he he's obviously you know he's got a real um, you know um, I guess like emotional connection to you in some ways there if he's a father figure and he's you know he, he, you know you've worked together. There's an emotional connection between you and uh, Duncan, and he's the bellman, so he doesn't leave the bell. He's in the bell all the time. And then there's Dave. So, you know, I mean, first, Chris, you, you give me a little bit about Dave and then we'll go back to George as well. But, but Chris, you know, I mean, Dave, you spent, you spent time with Dave in the, uh, in the chamber and then obviously you're diver one, well, he's diver one and you're diver two and you go off to the manifold to do your work, right? So but he, he calls himself the Vulcan, right? Or that's certainly what he got called. And, and tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think George wants to talk about David a bit as well, doesn't he? Don't you? But um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll cast him first, really, and say that you know, Dave is a is a really fantastic, um, fantastic bloke. He really is. You know, he's intelligent, and uh, you know, I like to think he's one of my closer friends uh, offshore, really. And um, he's he's moved to work for a company about another company about a year ago, so I don't see so much of him anymore. But he's definitely, certainly, you know, the film. If you've seen it, or you get to see it, there's a certain. There's a touch of characterization, I think, about the three of us. You know, uh, I'm given the sort of the new boy role, which was partly true, but not not entirely. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Duncan gets to play dad, which he which he, which he is and was. Uh, and Dave, yeah, gets cast as this sort of uh, uh, Vulcan, as you say. But I don't think that's a fair fair sort of. Uh, I think he's I think he's hard done by, you know. And um, that that you know that's one thing. He's, he's you know he's a warm guy. He's just very professional about what he does. He does he does tend to say what he thinks. He doesn't suffer fools and. Um, yeah, uh, but the, the, you know, the truth is the film has a touch of poetic license about it. The, um, you know, just to give you a bit of background, the, there was an original film before Last Breath, uh, a sort of 45 minute in-house version, um, in which, uh, it's similar sort of talking head interviews and that kind of thing. Dave, Dave uses lines, you know, 
which they quite liked. And they uh, they sort of re- got him to really say them in last breath, but they sort of get edited down. So there's one that's, you know, gets quoted online quite a bit that he says something on the lines of, you know, he's going to fetch an inanimate object or that kind of thing, you know. And it makes him sound a little heartless, you know. You know, but the truth is the full, full sentences, you know, I didn't want to treat going to fetch Chris, like, you know, going to fetch a friend or a colleague. I needed to put that to the back of my mind and treat him like an inanimate object. But, you know, the beauty of editing is that that gets slightly misconstrued, I, I think, you know. And um, this, by the way, I'll tell you now, it doesn't bother Dave in the slightest because he, yeah. you know, he, being a professional he is, was only concerned about coming across as professional, which I think he does. And, um, you know, the bottom line is, from my point of view, um, you know, we'll come on to what happened. But, uh, you know, on that night in particular, you couldn't have asked for anybody better yeah. to be coming to get you. I'm sure George will second that, you know, somebody who's got a cool head and w- wasn't distracted by emotion at all and was, was capable of just coming down and doing what was basically his job, you know, and he'd be the first to say that. Um, so, um, you know, do you want a, f- a flapping, you know, emotional wreck in there with you or do you want someone who's, you know, maybe a little bit uh, cooler, you know, and uh, that's what Dave was, yeah. But, you know, like I said, he's, he is a man of two two faces he's a, he's a lovely guy at home and um yeah there we go <laughs> yeah it's really interesting that's really interesting so george you know dave really well as well right yeah and i obviously see it from a, a different perspective now as a supervisor um i mean dave and duncan i've i've had them in my teams as a supervisor you know a few times now um i mean dave is a very i, I think it was a bit unfair the way dave comes across as the film you know, and it's obviously, as Chris quite rightly said, it's all to do with editing. Because um, he's not really like that. And it, it, it kind of paints, paints him in a, a not, you know, in a slightly different light. But in reality, he's a bloody good diver, very professional. You know, as a supervisor, if you've got him in your team, you're going to have an easy trip. Uh, you know, and the same with um, Duncan, you know, where he talks a lot. But, but other than that, but other than that, I think Chris would agree. But uh, uh, <laughs> as a supervisor, they make your life easy, easier, <laughs> not easy, easier. Because if you you need good, professional, strong, you know, strong divers that uh, you know are really experienced, um, they know the job well. Uh, and as Chris said, you know when when shit goes bad, which it really did that night, you know, they're the guys you want in your team. Uh, and as a supervisor, you know, and that's a terrible position to be in where Craig, the supervisor, well, ended up. I know you're going to touch on that, so I won't no, go let's, No, let's talk about it in a sec. So uh, Emma, my good lady, says, uh, I'd 100% want to have someone like Dave in my team, especially in a high-pressure crisis. Go, Dave. Yeah. Absolutely right. And he, he, although he comes across, you can sort of smile about the way that he comes across, which was, well, it's, I'm just doing my job, you know, I just had to sort this problem out and I just, I'm just doing it. It's very matter of fact. Um, that's that's a, a good thing, <laughs> you know, in a crisis, being able to hold it together and not be rushing around like a crazy person because it's not, it's, that's not the environment for that anyway. Um, so, but let's explain. So, so you steam like 12 hours off Aberdeen. Um, so you're right in the middle of nowhere. Uh, literally about halfway across the North Sea. You're in the middle of nowhere, uh, and the job is to go down uh, and work on a, a manifold, right, Chris? On the night in question, you mean? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, exactly that. We were working about 90 miles east of Aberdeen, I think, uh, in a place called the, it was called the Huntingdon Manifold. 
Um, so that sort of 90 miles east puts you pretty much in a spine. Most of the oil fields in the North Sea are running a spine down the middle between sort of the UK and Norway. It's a bit of a generalisation, but, you know, that's the most of them. Um, so, yeah, we're about as far from land as you can you can be in the North Sea, I suppose. Um, but we were working inside uh, what's yeah what's called a manifold. So it was um, a series of uh, oil wells inside a inside a sort of protective structure. Uh, this thing's about ten meters high, maybe twenty five meters long. You know, so like a, a sort of big house. Um, yeah, and we were for us on that night. It was uh, it was about ten o'clock at night, and it was it was a real sort of very much a normal day at the office, which is how we normally describe it. You know, we were doing a bit of pressure testing, and we were basically removing a section of, of pipe work to to replace it. Um, the water was actually pretty pretty clear that night. Um, it was the kind of work that you know it's pretty pretty run of the mill for us, nothing unusual. So we certainly, yeah, we had no sort of inclination at all of uh, of what was to come that night. You know, it felt it felt run of the mill if you like. So <clears throat> dynamic positioning, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, Kev's Kev's big on health and safety and, and shared something uh, as I am, of course, as well. But Kev Kev's going to share some stuff later, certainly around some of the investigation and questions and, and bits and bobs. And Kev, if you want to come in, at, if you've got questions that are relevant to what we're talking about, just give me a shout. And yeah, so yeah, um, yeah, yeah, no, I want you to, you know, get involved if you want to get involved here, yeah, because otherwise, you know me, I'll, I'll just keep going. Um, but dynamic positioning, so that's basically something that locks you out, layman's terms, locks you over the top of the, the manifold or top of the site where you need to be, and then the bell comes down out of that, down towards the seabed, and then you've got your umbilical, that then you go down, and that's when you start doing your work on the manifolds. That, that's a layman's terms, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly it, really. Yeah, it's um, you know people always assume perhaps that you drop anchors and things because it's you know it's essential for two divers working on a seabed, but the boat remains in one geographical position essentially. Um, but uh, dropping anchors isn't always feasible in deep water. We also need to move the boat around all the time, and also there are lots of very expensive you know and dangerous things on the seabed that you wouldn't want to drop an anchor onto. So uh, the solution is, uh, as you rightly said, this thing called a, a dynamic positioning system, which uses uh, sort of gps and then uh, beacons on the seabed and things called taut wires which are basically weighted wires and their angle of angle of inclination is fed back to a essential computer on the bridge so all, all these various sources of information are fed back uh, and they're basically telling the this computer how the boat is being affected by the wind and the waves and the current you know the tides uh, and the computer processes all that and instructs the various thrusters and propellers around the boat to counteract those basically and, and allows the boat, you know, to stay in one position with pretty remarkable accuracy, really. Um, you know, as a, as a diver on the seabed, you can you can sort of have, a you know, a big 25-ton load on a crane, for example, and you can ask the ship to move 12 metres on 237 degrees and it will very serenely do that, even in, you know, reasonably extreme extreme weather so it's a you know it's a fantastic system when it works yeah well yeah i was gonna say on the night in question it all went to shit so uh, <laughs> that's one way of putting it yeah <laughs> so um, yeah 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 it's technical if that was in the report then or if it wasn't that's in exactly, the report, exactly how to put it yeah yeah, yeah let's put it in the report uh if you need me you know where to find me um but um so so you know uh, yeah i mean craig is the dive supervisor on the night uh, George, you can you can obviously you're the one person on this call that completely re can relate mm. to what Craig must have felt when those alarm when those alarms started to come on, particularly as it went sort of amber and then red very very quickly. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we, we, in any dive control or on any any diving boat, you have a you've got a dive, uh, 
DP system, as Chris just explained. Um, and when everything is up and running and it's all uh, all been checked, we have a series of um, traffic, well, we just call it the DP traffic lights, really. And it's a red, amber, and green. When you've got a green light, it's basically everything is good. Um, we've got good solid positioning and, you know, we, we can go diving. Um, so for Craig or for any supervisor to see anything other than a green is, is not what you want to see, basically, because an amber light is essentially saying that you've, we're holding position, but there's a problem with some aspect of the system. And it could be a million different things that could throw up an amber light. But that essentially would be, I mean, for me as a supervisor, if I see an amber light, you're reporting everything and you are going to recover. That's, the what gonna That's what I was going to ask. Do you see an amber often or not? No. Never. No. Uh -huh. you know, I mean, I mean it's, it's a massive deal on a, on, yeah. a dive, on a DP boat, especially a diving boat, which requires really accurate, DP, uh, you know, um, positioning. I mean, all, all the boats that work in the North Sea have dy dynamic positioning, but their accuracy, it doesn't matter as much because they're not got divers working underneath them. So, you know, it, it's really important we have really solid positioning. And it's within a metre, you know, uh, you might have a footprint of a metre. You know, rough weather, it might be two or three metres, but, you know, that's pretty bloody good, you know. So for Craig on the night, or any supervisor, but particularly Craig, you know, to see an amber light, you know, that's not what you want to see. And you most definitely don't want to see a red light because that means shit is really, really, is really going to go bad because that means yeah, you, are, you no longer have positioning. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, they might not even have control of the shit by that stage. So... Uh, which is essentially what happened, you know, the night of Chris's incident. You know, they, they had an amber light because they had a, a an issue on the bridge. They didn't know what it was at that point, but it obviously all happened, unfolded very quickly. Uh, then, you know, the bridge pressed and gave a red light because they basically lost control of the ship, you know, and it's a, wow. yeah, it's a big ship and they yeah. no longer had any sort of control over it. Uh, well, is it something, something like 8,000 tons of steel or something? I read something. It's, it's a, you know, uh, what? 5,000 unloaded, yeah, 8,000 million. Yeah, it's a big ship, you know. James, uh, uh, James, James is saying, yeah, it sure did. I think you might know. <laughs> uh, he says it sure did. It sure did all go to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've got uh, we've got a few. Matt, Matt is saying good stuff, lads. Uh, I think you might, maybe you know Matt, I'm not sure. Um, and uh, quick quick question says, what was the sea temperature and visibility uh, on the night? Um, I think sea, sea temperature was about, I think it's about four degrees, we think, down at about down at the very bottom. 90, it was yeah. 91 metres that night, so about four, yeah, four degrees. And then Philippines, it was actually fairly good. That wasn't really a factor that night. It was unusually good, yeah. I mean, I couldn't tell you what it was, but yeah, probably, you know, seven or eight metres of visibility, which is more than we'd normally have, yeah. So, so uh, dynamic positioning sounds like a brilliant idea, as you say, Chris, when it works, right? Um, and so, uh, and so there you are, uh, and there's an 18 foot swell on the, on the surface. So there's some, some big waves going on, right? But, uh, you reliably, you, all you dive people, you reliably inform me that that isn't that bad. And, and the, the ship can hold in that, in that, in that kind of weather, uh, reasonably okay. Or, or, you know, with a green light, it can stay, it can stay in position normally. Correct. 
Yeah, I mean, you if you you know if you weren't able to work in those sort of conditions, you would never get anything done in the North Sea. So it's it's um, yeah. I mean, that was that was. I think that yeah, about maybe a thirty-five knot wind. I think that night, so that's edging towards the point at which we might consider stopping diving. Is that fair to say, George? You know, it was. Um, it's still well yeah, within the bounds. Sorry, yeah, once you start, it, and it depends. You know, we watch the weather forecast. You know, particularly, obviously, the the, the bridge. Uh, we're in charge of the ship, so and as dive supervisors, we check. You know, when we come on shift, we it's one of the first things we'll do is you know get a weather. A weather report and the offshore weather is, is generally pretty accurate generally you know I mean it's obviously a little bit hit and miss but it's pretty accurate but once you once you're doing 35 knot winds and it's and it depends whether it's an increasing forecast um, but you know you're going to be starting to if, if it's a, an increasing forecast you're going to be thinking about knocking diving on the head of you know 40 knots um, the other thing is our cranes go out of limits with 40 knot winds. Um, we yeah. can't use cranes on the boat because they have wind limits. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that doesn't always stop us working, but if it is, you know, a job that requires the cranes, then 40 knots is going to stop you anyway. So, so, um, so let's 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 pick up then. So, Chris, there you are. You're down there. Uh, you go off your uh, diver two. Uh, you go off into the darkness. You've got your umbilical, and your umbilical is basically everything, right? It's warm. It's really warm water to keep you to keep you warm, <laughs> obviously. Uh, oxygen to keep you breathing. Uh, anything else that goes through there through the umbilical? Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It is. It is an umbilical. It's your. It is a. It's a lifeline, and uh, it, it gives you everything, all the services you you need to survive. So yeah, breathing gas, uh, hot water. We we saw of a. We wear a fairly loose-fitting uh, wetsuit. It's nothing sophisticated at all, but it's um, it sort of has a sort of network of uh, almost like garden hoses, you know, like an irrigation system for your garden. So it pumps hot hot seawater around you uh, to keep you warm, and it's, it works very well. It's like being in a you know jacuzzi really when you're down there. Uh, but yeah, you're, there's also a, a, an electric cable which gives you power for a, a, a torch and a, a camera which which sit on your hat your hat. Um, there's also what we call a reclaim hose. So because the, that gas that we breathe. We breathe, uh, you know, heliox, a, mix, a mixture of helium and oxygen. But helium is a very expensive gas, so it's too expensive just to breathe out into the water. So it's it's sort of recycled by having it sucked back up to the ship. So there's there's that hose as well, a sort of strengthening cable and things. So it's a pretty thick thing. It's you know it's a good uh, you know maybe two or three inches thick the uh, sort of bundle of cables which comes down to you. But yeah, that that basically provides you with a an essentially infinite supply of everything you need. And that's the luxury of saturation diving. There aren't any real time limits apart from getting tired and, you know, legal, as George said, we're sort of legally limited to six hours in the water, but there's no other reason really that you couldn't dive 24 hours a day really. Yeah. There was a question, uh, there was a question earlier actually from Gary and I, I wanted to come to it. Uh, now Gary's a good friend and another coaching client as well. Six hours underwater working seems like a long time to be working in such a risky environment. How tiring is the shift and how much rest do you get between? Yeah, I mean it's it's um, it's a fairly long time. It's you know it's it passes it can pass quite quickly. It kind of depends what you're doing. There can be days when you are uh, you know doing slightly technical work, or you might just be sitting there watching gauges, or uh, you're not doing anything particularly physical. And six hours is, is nothing really. And there are days when you might be 
swimming midwater and thinning away and, and and lugging heavy you know hitting things with big hammers and six hours can seem like a an extraordinarily long time on days like that so yeah it's like any job really it has good days and bad days but yeah, yeah it's um uh, once so we work we work a 24-hour shift pattern so um it used to be different but nowadays you work six hours in the water as, as george said that's about an eight-hour bell run for that's the time it takes to get down there and come back and you know then you normally have um whatever's left in the air yeah, so 16 hours 16 hours off yeah Oh, so you spend 16 hours back in the chamber on the ship and then yeah. and you get, oh, I see. Okay, fine. And uh, is, there, is there drinking water involved in that? Or are you, like, are you down there kind of? Yeah, there is, there is. It actually didn't used to be, yeah, when I first started diving. Sorry, George, go on. You were yeah, well, well, what I was going to say is, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, we, they have, the, the lads have to have a minimum of 12 hours off after a dive. That, that's the minimum. Um, that's just, that has to be a minimum of 12 hours. We can't. We can't use the team before that, um, and we've now legislation has changed very slightly in regards to, to drinks breaks, where, where actually you you have to have a drinks break now um, <clears throat> before four hours up. It's between two after the second hour and you know before within uh, before the fourth hour. So you have to go back to the bell for a drink. Um, Generally, fifteen minutes, and it's you go in, take your hat off, you know, have a, have a drink and a bit of a chill for you know fifteen minutes, whatever, and then back out and back to it. So I, I need to get onto the dramatic bit as well in a minute because this is, I mean, it's all it's all amazing stuff. I need to get onto the dramatic bit, but I, I do love my wife. Uh, she's absolutely awesome. Are you, prepare yourself for this question, Chris. She loves the question. She loves the question, does Emma? Uh, prepare yourself for this question, Chris. You ready? Uh, yeah. There we go. What about if you get an itch on your nose or your eyes? <laughs> yeah. I think it's a very good question. Yeah. Good question. Uh, well, you're—I uh, don't know what the language is. You're—I uh, mean, you're—you're—you're you're, you're basically, aren't you? You're nothing, <laughs> very, nothing, nothing to do about that. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had an easy answer to you, for you, but no. Uh, you have um you have like a little nose piece. So in your you've got this because I have you know the helmets out here, and you have a a nose piece which you can push in to sort of sit, make a seal over your nose so when you're diving down it helps you to equalise so that's probably the only weapon you have against you know in a fight against an itch so you can spend a lot of time you know doing that and trying but yeah, it's, yeah. if you're very brave I suppose you could put your hand up your neck down but I, well, I was, uh, yeah, very I was brave. not brave enough for that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so look 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 let's, let's, let's keep going with this right so all of a sudden uh Craig's well actually is it Michelle or is it Michael or Michelle the DP officer on the on the documentary so he says um, there's an alarm I've never seen before so the DP is starting to like malfunction shall we shall we call it um, Craig's saying he's never had a red light and all of a sudden I'm I'm jumping here but you get a, you get a message Chris to say get off the structure right yeah absolutely i mean actually the first thing we heard was the alarm the alarm itself uh, we have a sort of an open open line of communication to the to the dive supervisor when you're in the water um what you can usually hear is people you know the dive supervisor plus anybody in the background who wants to you know slag a diver off as they're walking past which is their is their want and will you know but you do hear alarms all the time there's uh, sort of oxygen alarms and carbon dioxide alarms and all sorts of things going off quite regularly and we we operate what's called a twin bell system so we have two diving bells on our boat and um um so when the second bell is about to be launched with your sort of replacement team if you like um they test the alarm so you, you do hear them all the time but 
So it wasn't really when we did hear those, you know, we they sounded maybe louder than normal, but that wasn't really panic-inducing in itself. But it was more, it was more the way Craig was telling us. You know, he told us very quickly. You know, make your way out of the structure, uh, get yourself back to the bell, and you know, something about his tone of voice, um, which told us. You know, I didn't really understand what was going on particularly, but I, you know, I knew something was afoot, and that we. We weren't we weren't messing about. This wasn't a drill, if you like. But it definitely wasn't. We weren't definitely panicking at that stage. We we sort of he told us just to put our our tools down, which we did, and we we made a fairly orderly exit, if you like, from the from the structure we were working in. Um, we can often work in very in, intricate structures, if you like, so structures with a lot of snagging hazards. Because um, we'll probably come onto this in a bit. But we have a you know this mantra in diving is 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 to protect your your manage your umbilical at all times. And you constantly need to be aware of where that is because that is as we discussed earlier is your lifeline. And um, you know if you if you if you lose that as I'm about to demonstrate, you're in serious serious trouble. So um, you know we're always conscious uh, you know, every sort of second of, of every dive of, of where that is, or you certainly should be. So we, you know, we both take our umbilicals in our left hand. Dave and I. Dave was maybe a couple of meters ahead of me, um, you know, towards the exit, if you like. Um, and we sort of made our way out, making sure that those umbilicals didn't catch on, on anything as we left. Um, but that was that was all fairly orderly. Um, we, we sort of dropped down to the seabed, basically expecting to see the diving bell uh, directly in front of us. The diving bell sits normally about maybe sort of six, seven, eight meters above the above the seabed and as i said it was a fairly clear clear visibility day there so we had been able to see it um from the job when we when we left if you like but it, you know it wasn't there and that was disconcerting but again not that unusual it's not unusual not to be able to see where that diving bell is um but what we did notice that were our, um, our umbilicals which had been trailing fairly straight back to the to the diving bell were, were going directly behind the behind us and back over the top of this um of the structure we've been working in so um, I mean, again, we're getting, getting treated at all times to make our way back to the bell, not, not really understanding what was going on. But, um, you know, one thing we haven't perhaps touched upon too much is the fact that when you're, when you're saturation diving, there is only, there is literally only one safe haven. You know, the only, the only place you can go to, for refuge, if you like, is, is the diving bell. The, when you're scuba diving, you know, it's never wise to, to rush to the surface, but that is an option and, you know, you take your chances. But in saturation diving at that kind of depth, when your tissues are physically saturated with inert gases, you know, compressed inert gases, uh, that would result in explosive decompression of you know, the bends and, you know, in an explosive fashion and all sorts of blockages to your arteries and, and, the, and the flow of blood and gas to your brain. So it would be, you know, be catastrophic. It's not something that ever enters any saturation diver's heads it's just not not thought so sorry i'm digressing a bit but basically you know that that means you've only you've only got one thought in your head at that point and that is get you know get back to the bell, back to the bell and you know the easiest way to do that is to follow your umbilical because that's where it that's where it leads so you know both dave and i go on, Mike, yeah, so the, the umbilical is basically the other side of this house side also the umbilical is now where you you've gone one way and yeah. that and if you've turned the umbilical is now gone is now behind you and above or over the top of the structure again yeah exactly right so it's wrapping i can't i don't know where it's going but i can see that it's going in an op the opposite direction it's wrapped over the top of this this sort of 10 meter high structure so the only option we have at that point is to is to climb our own umbilicals to to right. make our way we should we should explain the reason for that is that the boat has shifted by 200 200 feet well it's, it's beginning to yeah so they they've, they've suffered you know this deep dynamic positioning system we, we talked about as 
basically, you know, those alarms represented a, a you know catastrophic single point failure of this um, this dynamic positioning system. It's a system that has multiple backups, so it has a backup and then a backup to the backup, and theoretically. That it shouldn't be possible for that to 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 happen, you know. But it, it did, and um, yeah. So the boat, the boat, effectively, they'd lost all control of it, um, and it was. I think Craig, you know, calls it a sailboat, which is what it was. And that wind and weather, which wasn't a sort of ca- causal factor, if you like, of what happened, but it definitely exacerbated it because in that wind and and waves, you know, the boat was being pushed away at a, a fair rate um, away from us. So yeah, that's what's pulling the umbilicals and the boat. The boat. Boat is obviously pulling the bell, and the whole thing's yeah. moving along, and your umbilicals are, go- are going over the structure. So you now have to go back, to retrace your steps in the darkness or whatever, following your umbilical to get back to the bell. That's where you, that's where you think you're going, right? Exactly right. Yeah. So the bell hangs on a on a wire directly below the ship. So as the ship moved away, the the bell exactly exactly to put it, it gets dragged away, and um, we've we've only got a maximum of fifty meters of umbilical on that day. Anyway, we had the 50, 50 meters of umbilical. So once the boat gets fifty meters away, we go going with it. You know, um, you know, assuming right. everything's in a straight line. So yeah, um, yes, yeah, so exactly that. So we you know we followed we, you follow your umbilical because that's your route to to, to home and to safety and. Um, we both climbed to the top of the structure and, um, you know, inevitably Duncan and the bell is coming up on our umbilicals. There's only so much you can do when we're climbing them. So I left, you know, we both left basically a loop of umbilical behind us, if you like. So once I get to the top of mine, there's a loop. Um, and as I said, you know, we, we constantly considering our umbilicals. So the first thing I do is turn to, to make sure that loop doesn't catch on anything, you know, and, um, with just with unbelievable speed really i you know i noticed where the umbilical was being pulled away and it had tightened around this um it was, it was what's called a transponder bucket which i won't bore you what that is but it's basically a metal metal outcrop on the side of this uh, this structure um the film sort of you see a little bit of a, a you know a little bit of footage down it but that sort of it's kind of slightly looped so it belies just how how quickly quickly it happens and um I think at that point I realised very, very quickly that you know that was in I was in I was in trouble because it, it had sort of snared underneath and become trapped and um, even as I dived down to try and shift it or loosen it, you know, I realised very quickly that it, that, that wasn't going to happen, you know, and I'd, I'd effectively again, as I think as Craig puts it better than I do, but you know, effectively I'd become an anchor, an anchor yeah. at the end of an eight thousand pound ship at that point. Yeah, is I there mean, a, yeah, quick, is there a quick release on on like on it so? Like say if you if when it got snagged, you could have let it go and then you would have had your um, you know your tanks to be able to go back with with Dave. Is that something that that's that's available? No, it's a short answer. No, it's not. So uh, you would have to you would have to physically cut the umbilical if you wanted to um, right. if you wanted to release yourself from it. Yeah, it's attached to a carabiner. Um, yeah, it's not. I mean, uh, I mean, it, there there are systems with quick releases to the gas hose, but certainly not to the whole thing. The integrity of that is very important. Um, you know, and that's very securely, securely fastened to you. Yeah. So, so you you get caught on this manifold, um, and you've also told me, and I think this is the moment. Uh, you've also told me that no one has no one has ever asked you this question. Uh, so, <laughs> I, was ho- I was hoping you wouldn't bring it up after all, Mark. But go on. <laughs> prepare, prepare yourself, old chap, because here it comes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was this your fault, Chris? Yeah. But it's, I, I mean, it would, I, yeah, I talked to Mark about this briefly a couple of nights ago, and um, that's what I said. You know, I've probably been, I've done sort of, I don't know, 
almost hundreds of these sort of discussion things and, and you know, presented to various places. No one has ever, ever been brave enough to say what seems to me like an obvious question. Yeah, yeah, was it, was it, was it your fault? <laughs> I only thought of it because, George, it's quite rare that I do these kind of things with a colleague, you know, or with somebody who actually knows what they're talking about, you know, so I can pretty much bluff anything, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, was it my fault? I don't know. I mean, it's hindsight's obviously a beautiful thing and you know if I was in the same position again I would have made sure it didn't catch but um I you know honestly don't believe I could have done anything about it um it was just the the side of the, the you know the bucket that I happened to, to get up and the speed it was going away, you know going away from me um yeah I mean I, I'm sort of you know I'm People sort of ask me, you know, you were brave, you know, people say, you know, you're brave and to go back and that kind of thing, which which is complete nonsense to me. It was, you know, it was my job. But the, the one thing that would have stopped me going back would be had I felt I was responsible, um, you know, for what happened, I suppose. That's not to say that, you know, with, you know, 10 or 12 years down the line, I would be more experienced and maybe deal with it slightly better. I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure is the truth to the answer. Yeah, it does. It does gnaw at me occasionally. And I worry more that other people think that. Uh, but like I say, no one's ever been brave enough to pointing that finger at me yeah. oh, I'm I don't know what George thinks yeah yeah George, George yeah I mean, I'm, first of all I'm happy to take that mansion to be the first yeah, thanks, person yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, nice you, back now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you should give yourself a massive pat on the back Mark you know <laughs> um, is it Chris's fault no I mean it, it's you, you just can't say what you, you know what as Chris said hindsight you know it's a wonderful thing you know, did you have too much umbilical? I mean, I, these are the questions that I could ask as someone that definitely knows, you know, the job. Is, mm-hmm. You know, did you have too much umbilical? There's, there's so many factors that, mm-hmm. you know, that affect it. But you, it's not Chris's fault that the shit pissed off, is it? You know, I mean, that, yeah. that's the one thing. That was that process of the ship moving off and being uncontrolled, you know, really... You know, that's no one's fault, you know. So whether Chris could have done something different, I mean, Dave obviously went up a slightly different part of the structure where that where that piece of steel that Chris is talking about wasn't there, yeah. you know. Um, I don't think you could really say it was Chris's fault, you know. I don't think you can do that because there's so, also, many, also, well, so many massive factors involved yeah. in it, you know. And we don't, you know, in health and safety and all that kind of stuff, we don't, we don't do blame. You know, it's not about blame. You know, and, and it's very much about responsibility. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, do. <laughs> we, we work in a, a no blame culture, yeah, and yeah. then you fuck up, <laughs> and, then, and then someone's to blame. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. We, me and Kev hear you. Me, me, me and Kev hear you from that um, for sure. So let's go back to that, right? So you know, you're in trouble. The umbilical, I mean, the sound that it makes on the on the on the documentary, I, I can only assume is real because what I'm seeing is real. I don't know if they dubbed that on or anything like that. I don't know. But the point, bottom line is, is that that sound of each of those kind of dunk dunk dunk, each of those things breaking, um, is that real? And then what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, there was a bit, a little bit of a delay before that. Um, the first thing, I, you know, the umbilical sort of stretching, you know, next will be as the boat moved away. And uh, I lost my, um, I think the first thing to go was my sort of, that electronics cable we were talking about and uh, the communications cable, we call it. And it, I think that must have 
snapped or got stretched to the point of no return inside the umbilical. So I it was like a you know jack being pulled out the back of a speaker. Suddenly I you know I'm plunged from uh, having somebody talking in my ear and telling me what's going on to to absolutely nothing, which is um, you know that's slightly panic inducing in itself. And then the next one to go was the uh, the gas hose. So the I think in before the umbilical snapped, the the gas hose was must have been tensioned to a point where it was either kinked or it had broken inside, and I lost the you know the supply of breathing gas to my hat, which you know for the best of us is, is, is obviously a panic <laughs> a panicky moment. Um, but as a diver, you sort of train for that. We all we all sort of go through drills with that kind of thing. And yeah. uh, as you touched upon earlier on, we carry these sort of supply um, uh, tw- a twin set we call them, so two scuba bottles basically on our back with a, an emergency supply of gas, um, which is is open with a, a knob on the side of our helmet. So I sort of opened that up. Um, but that puts you in a very different world. You know, that world you've got from a world where you have this infinite supply of of gas that we talked about before two one where you're a very very finite amount of gas you know um the film sort of makes a big deal of five minutes you know but you know if you do the maths truthfully it's, it's probably about nine minutes actually of gas that i had in there um but that's it you're you know, you're on a clock at that point um but yeah after that the sort of the umbilical stretch and stretch and i don't i don't remember hearing the sound particularly that's not not a memory i i have that dave does you know he was he at that point you know just before it snapped we had a this sort of strange on a cinematic moment where we were face to face because yeah he's as we described you know he's limited by a 50 meter umbilical so he's sort of been pulled away but he he did turn to try and get back to me and help me um and but he only managed to get within maybe two or three meters of me so close enough for us to sort of look face to face and you know i sort of me imploring him to, to to give me a hand and him sort of almost apologetically saying you know i can't and you know and then he was you know like almost like a film he was pulled away into the darkness in his hat like sort of disappeared never to see him again and you know he himself was in no small amount of danger he's been dragged behind a um you know a boat that's been you know completely lost of control and there's all kinds of structures and things down there that he could clatter off and you know um yeah uh, but but yeah he distinctly remembers the that sort of shotgun bang of the you know the massive tension on that umbilical being being released yeah I mean, yeah, that moment, obviously, you know, it is cinematic, you know, the, the two eyes meet and you can't speak. So you've got the only communication is for your eyes. You know, I mean, being completely honest, although you're trying to keep as calm as possible, clearly, uh, and we've done your e-colours as well. And you came out as very blue green, which is a lot more kind of steady paced and a lot more kind of thoughtful and, and not so fast paced. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've never called. I've never called it a survivor for a disaster. Have that levels, right? So, <laughs> so um, but my point is, is that um, you know you've uh, you've come out with a you know certain personality type that keeps you uh, you know quite a bit calmer. And and I wonder, really, you know, really, 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 because you've you said the word panic a couple of times, and obviously there's anxiety and stuff like that going on. But you you've been trained clearly. You wouldn't be down if you didn't know what you were doing. You know, mm. tell me, tell me. About <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. 50, 50, 50, yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> tell me that, you know, tell me really, 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 or tell us really, 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 what, what was, what was going through your mind at that, you know, is that moment? Yeah. No, there's, I will never make a secret of it, you know, and I defy anyone to be anything, anything different, but, uh, you know, a complete and utter panic. Yeah. It was um, extremely frightening. I mean, uh, when the umbilical snapped, I was sort of, 
I was caught on the top of the structure at the time, and I remember my, my sort of first worry that was my my legs were splaying and bit well, I was being pulled into the structure, and I thought, you know, my, first of all, my legs were going to break was my first thought, and then my second thought was the umbilical was sort of caught around this very small gap, and I thought, you know, as it's being edged towards it, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through there as well, you know, and, and that, you know, like being pulled through a, a cheese grater, and that obviously wouldn't have been a you know a nice way to go. Uh, but yeah, when it snapped, I sort of because of that enormous tension, I, I fell backwards to the to the seabed like a sort of upturned turtle on my back, and uh, found myself in this most complete uh, and uh, you know complete and absolute darkness. You know, um, I literally couldn't see a hand in front of my face. Uh, and though I'd probably only fallen maybe two or three meters away from this structure, where you know, which is like a massive house, um, I had absolutely no idea where that was or what direction it was in. But yeah, this a hundred percent on. I'm panicking. I'm breathing very, very hard. I don't really know what's going on, and I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm very scared. I won't deny that. And um, I was lucky. I sort of, I, I got up, and um, I'm still thinking I've got to get back to, I've got to get back to the diving bell. As I said, that's your only, your only option. And um, I literally put my hands out in front of me and took a couple of steps in, in hope more than expectation, having no real idea. You know, it's easy to get lost down there at the best of time with a light and a compass, and you know. George in my ear telling me which way to go it's, you know it's still easy to, to go in the wrong direction um whereas there it was just it was just complete pop luck and you know one of the many enormous doses of good fortune I had was I, I bumped straight back into the structure after a, a couple of spaces because that was the moment that was actually the moment that Kev brought, brought to my attention do you remember Kev yeah do you remember you, you basically said to me there's this story of this guy um, and the bit you were talking about was we were talking about luck versus the law of attraction versus like in moments in life where you, you're just not sure, but you take a, like a leap of faith almost and you, and you go for it. And that was the moment you said to me, you said, there's a story about this guy. And by the way, you look at you sitting right next to him now having a chat. Right? Um, and there's this guy, story of this guy who basically, uh, uh, you know, was on the ocean bed, couldn't see where he was going and literally just walked, walked out, you know, hands first. I mean, how did you feel when you saw that, Kev? Um, it just blew me away. I mean, did you did you actually did you have a rough idea of where it could be, or was it just a, was it just blind luck and a pure guess? Yeah, and I, I mean, it was as, as black as you can imagine. Yeah, uh, absolutely disorientated. No, no idea. Yeah, yeah. So no uh, backup light on your helmet. Nothing. Just, just. Well, all, the power, all the power's gone, I guess, isn't it? I know. It could have been a backup battery on there or something to, you know. So you, yeah. you just stand up and choose a direction and walk. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Yeah, like like you're going for a piss in the middle of the night. You know, you put your hands out in front of you and hope for the best, don't you? That you're gonna, you know. Not me, me getting up for a pee in the night is nothing like that, Chris. I'm telling you, <laughs> I've actually got a little stormtrooper nightlight on my toilet to guide me. But I think you, you can. Well, uh, I'll be recommending that as soon as we get back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, look, you know, just the the pure luck of, of that, and and it, that is genuinely, you know, lucky because, you, like you said, you would have walked off into no man's land potentially, and if you'd have kept if you'd have kept walking and not walked into the structure, well, yeah. that's it, it's over, right? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, a big a big deal's made of that sometimes, but yeah, I mean, it would have it certainly rendered you know finding a structure and being able to climb to the top and you know put myself in the middle of it made it easier or you know for the rescue it's not to say that had i walked off in a no man's land you know at the end of the day i had a beacon on me they were they were tracking that beacon on the bridge so you know they would have they would have found me eventually uh but it would have been much more difficult for the rv to find me and um 
you know, they were just working off range and they did, they lost, they lost all the navigation screens. They were just working off range and bearing from a radar pretty much, you know? Um, so yeah, it would, uh, would it have, it could have definitely delayed things. It would have made, it would have meant lowering the bell into a dangerous position below the, the level of any of the structures, which is a sort of cardinal rule in, in diving that we never, we never lower it below the, the structures because that could act as an anchor effectively and jeopardize the whole ship. So yeah, there's a whole, whole matter of things that made it, better that I was on the top of the structure but yeah uh, there's one thing to add that is that <laughs> to to do the rescue would have been considerably harder as Crystal touched on had he not been on the top of the structure because a, you would have had to find him uh, and then put the vessel in a position where they could get to him and if that was right across the other side you know it, it was bad enough they were, you know to get the ship back in position anyway yeah, but it could have been. It definitely could have been a different outcome. I, I, I think you know. I think it was a, definitely a factor in the fact that yeah. Chris survived. It was because of just absolute abject luck that yeah. he managed to get himself on the top of the structure, which made you know you you saw the footage. The ROV came up, up well, to yeah, the structure yeah. and, and found Chris straight away. So, so that could have been 10-15 minutes, obviously. Exactly right, and I get that, George. And, and, and let's come on to that. So, so basically, um, you're in panic mode. You find this structure. You have to climb a few meters up to get onto the top of it. You get yourself up there. You're looking around for the for the bell. There's nothing. Um, what else do you remember from from those sort of moments onwards? I feel I remember pretty much all of it. Um, yeah, exactly like you said, I sort of climbed to the top and I remember fully, fully expecting to see the, the diving bell there above me somewhere or, you know, Dave on his way back to get me or Duncan, you know, for some reason. Um, but yeah, there was just nothing, not, not a speck of uh, light in the sea above me. And, you know, when you talk about panicking, that, that was that was sort of a, uh, you know, a strange moment for me really because I think at that point, you know, I got to the top and I could see nothing. So I was sort of clinging onto the grating on the top of the structure, mainly so the current wouldn't wash me off or I wouldn't fall off the side because I couldn't really tell where that was. Um, but I remember sort of roughly doing the maths, thinking, you know what, I've got seven, eight, nine minutes, something like that in this bailout. And, um, um, you know, I've used a fair bit up already, you know, uh, scrambling around on the seabed, climbing up, breathing hard and, you know, in, in a, you know, in a panic. And, um, uh, therefore, I, I can't possibly have much time left. And even if Dave had been right in front of me, ready to sort of lift me back up to the to the bell and put me put my head into a, a breathable environment, I, I still I sort of remember thinking I don't think I don't think there's enough time. So I almost I didn't give up hope at all, but I I definitely resigned myself to the fact that you know fairly quickly this was going to be it. And that had a that in itself had a strangely that did have a, a very calming effect. You know. Um, hold that thought, Chris. Hold that thought. Hold that thought, because I want to come back to that. Because the film's very clever with this. The film's very clever with this bit of editing as well. Because it, then, it, what, what it's doing then, this all this has happened, and then it cuts to the them trying to get back to you. So yeah. I'd like to cover a bit of that, and then I'd like to come back to like your 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 train of thought, right? So so basically, as George said, they send this ROV down there with lights and a camera on it, and it's a little little vehicle basically, uh, and they get eyes on you very very quickly, despite the fact the boat is like. 200 meters away or whatever and they're all scrambling to try and get everything back online to bring it back to get the bell back to get everything where, where back to where you are um but they've got the the rov and so they can see you there's lights on you and the footage is 
unnerving. The footage is like, I mean, one of them even says like he's waving to us. Look, you can see us. He's waving to us. Um, could you see the IOV at all? So no, so that's um, you know that that happened later. So you know those moments on the top were sort of precursor to that. I was unconscious long before the ROV. Well, not long, but you know, fair, fair, we will never really know. We'll never really know how long I was conscious for, is the truth, because there is no footage of that. But yeah, you're right. So the the boat had a uh, you know they completely lost control. They the captain had been dragged out of his bed, and he and the chief officer were were trying to manually. Uh, direct the vessel and they have uh, four joysticks so they're facing each other trying to control the thrusters manually which they've never really had to do before it's a system really that's designed to nudge the boat into a, a quayside in a very calm mm. port and you know what they're berthing wow that, that all, on top of that they had absolutely no frame of reference you know it was 10 o'clock at night in september so it's dark they're all their navigation screens had gone black um we're not anywhere near an oil rig or anything like that so they had absolutely no you know, way of referencing where I was or where anything else was, you know, very, very disorientating. And, you know, the, the, the best they managed really was to, to try and get the bow into the into the prevailing weather, you know, to steady the ship a little bit. In terms of bringing the boat back to my position, they, they just, they simply couldn't, you know, there's a there's a sort of snail trail of the of their efforts, you know, not, not, not to cast any aspersions on them at all, but, you know, they're in ex- it's an extremely difficult situation. And, uh, but it's, you know, it's like Spaghetti Junction, really. They're not really making any progress towards me. But yeah, so they get to, a, eventually they, they end up nearly 250 metres away, but we have a, described an ROV on the, on the boat, which has a tether or you know, a, a cable of, of 300 odd meters. So they, that was able to get back to me long before the ship was able to re- return to my position. And that's, that's how we have that sort of, you know, pretty haunting footage. I mean, yeah. I mean, how do you feel when you watch that footage back? No, same as anyone else, you know, you feel slightly disassociated from it, I think as a as the person involved, um, you know, I'm like anyone else. It's, it's kind of, yeah, slightly haunting and strange to watch, isn't it? And I wonder if he makes it, you know? <laughs> I wonder if he makes it. Hang on, it's me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, there's also a little bit in here as well, which is like the uh, the IT man's dream, uh, where they basically switch it all off uh, and then switch it all back on again. Uh, and, it, and it starts to work, right? Does it, is that fair to say? That's exactly what exactly what it was really. Um, so they are, are the ship's crew are, are Norwegian, you know, principally Norwegian anyway. And I, but it's a Norwegian vessel, um, so they call that the Swedish solution, you know, as a local insult. Uh, apparently, the Swedes call it the Norwegian. So, so you know, when you don't know what to do, you just turn it, you turn it off, and you turn it on again. Yeah. Um, but I mean, on a more serious note, people often ask, you know, question often get asked is why didn't they do that before? You know, why did it take forty minutes for them to make yeah. that decision? Um, but you know, the answer to that is that they. They, you know, this was, as it was for all of us, a, a situation, you know, as George said, we don't see red lights, you know, uh, we don't see amber lights, never mind red ones. And um, they'd never had to manually control the vessel in those kind of conditions. They, we never had to face anything like this, really. And they, they uh, my understanding is the captain's principal worry was that, you know, if he were to reset the system, they might return with less than, you know, at least they had manual control at that point. And his worry was they turn it off. They don't get nothing comes back, you know. Now we are dead in the water, so you know it's one of those things. It's quite easy to judge for people, you know, on internet, you know, banging out on the on the Facebook or whatever. But that's that's you know, it was a very very difficult and pressurized situation for them too. So yeah, I heard I heard a great quote once that opinions are like uh, arseholes. Everyone's got one. Yeah, yeah, everyone's, everyone's got I've got I've got a few uh, I've got a few quotes on this. So Jenna's joined. Jenna's saying this is such an incredible story, and thank you for sharing. Uh, James says, uh, 
uh, God was watching you that night, mate, uh, and everyone on the boat as well. One lucky, one lucky man for sure. Uh, Gary said, uh, have you had any incidents that have required you to get back to the bell so quickly? Um, that's quite a good question, actually. Uh, probably not as quickly, but... Well, I'll, answer that one. I'll answer that one in a second. There was, yeah, but go on. We'll come back to that in a moment. Um, but here's the thing. So the, the, the quotes I saw about the film... Uh, from the BBC and blah, 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 blah. And by the way, you know, you've been on this morning and, and now you're on straight talking with us. Right? No, so, it's a big time which, now, I know. I know that. Which one's more fun, Chris? Which one's more fun? Uh, and and, and it, is, it is big time because George is here, right? So yeah, um, sure. the, uh, the, the, the quotes about the, uh, the film are tense, gripping, terrifying, you know, all those kind of words. And this is the moment. This is the moment when, you know, it's all hit the fan. Um, Duncan's in the bell and he's praying. All the um, umbilicals all come back in. It's all snapped and it's all gone. And he's, he's in bits, in his own words, shitting himself. Um, they switch it on. They do a hard reset, switch it switch it off and switch it back on again. Um, and then they've got the ROV there. You're not consciously aware of that or anything like that. They finally get back into position. 35 minutes in total before Dave can get to you. Yeah, I think I think um, yeah, about thirty-five minutes before Dave was able to come down and yeah, execute the rescue. That's right, yeah, before they were securely in position. I mean, the, the, the captain had apparently said that you know, had they not been able to reset the dynamic position system, they probably wouldn't have come to get me because he wouldn't have risked putting the bell anywhere near me, you know, in an uncontrolled fashion, if you like. So yeah, yeah, but, but, but yeah, about thirty-five minutes. Which, as I said, we'll never really know exactly how long my 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 emergency gas lasted. You know, uh, yeah. to me, it certainly seemed to last. A lot longer than I thought it was. I was constantly expecting it to, to run out. Um, but yeah, yeah, something something like that. So that sort of, there's a sort of a window of, um, and by the time Dave gets me back to the bail, it's probably 40 minutes. So it's probably a window of 29, 30 minutes with, with nothing to breathe, basically. Yeah. So Dev, uh, Dave says, uh, very matter of fact, got love, Dave. We all, we all need a Dave. Dave says, very, uh, very uh, matter of fact, when I got back to the manifold, uh, I wasn't surprised. Uh, I saw a dead guy on the top of the manifold. Uh, you know, very matter of fact, isn't he? But he's just like, well, this is my job. Um, and you're six foot five. And so, I mean, you, you said you're, you're pretty thin, you know, you're a skinny chap. But, um, you know, that's still a bit, that's still a fair weight of a human being in all that gear to try and get all the way back to the, to the belt. Yeah, well, I was skinny when I was 16, yeah, less, definitely less so now, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. I mean, he, he uh, Dave is... Um, He's a sort of a, he's a very very fit guy. He's sort of got great upper body strength. He's sort of like a rock, I'd say like a rock climber sort of physique. You know, he's the kind of guy who does uh, chin ups in the in the chambers on the on baseballs that kind of thing. You know, so uh, very athletic and uh, you know, and even he found it a massive massive physical struggle to to get me back. Um, you know, we normally have a, an element of buoyancy in our in our gear, so we have a, a jacket that we can inflate in order to, to make us a bit lighter because we are, we're naturally weighted uh, heavy, if you like, because we work on the seabed most of the time. But you can inflate your jacket normally. Uh, so both Dave and I had that facility, but mine had been severed. So, so the hose which inflates mine had been severed, so that wasn't a possibility for me. And Dave, um, you know, in, in his kindness, took his off his inflation hose off his jacket and pushed it when he when he got to me pushed it up uh, we have a we wear what's called a neck dam which is basically a, yeah. a latex or a rubber seal around your neck which forms a watertight seal to your, to your helmet so he pushed it up there to try and uh, give me a supply of gas when he when he first got to me so he he didn't have any inflation either you know so he they they lowered the diving bell down 
as George will testify, you know, we have a sort of cardinal rule where we always keep the bell five metres above any working structure, but they lowered it down to, I think, just a couple of metres above. But even at that, uh, with the bell moving up and down in a sort of five metre swell, um, it was a monumental um, effort for him to to get me back. And, you know, obviously I... Uh, I can't. I can never thank him enough for that. You know, there's. I tell you. I tell you right now, there's a lot of people wouldn't have managed that. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Fair play to him. Absolutely. You know. Does he? Did he connect you? Connect to you, or essentially fireman lift you and then crawl up the own umbilical? What? How would he have done that? Yeah, he carries. Uh, we all carry a sort of what we call a rescue strop, which is like a mount, couple of mountaineering carabiners on a on a little lanyard. So he would have got to me clipped one end to me one end to himself so he can then turn and use both his his arms to to drag me up but yes you know i'm you know six foot five and weigh a little bit too much and um uh you know but we've also got a you know a whole raft of diving gear on me you know bailout bottles and helmets and tools and everything hanging off me so a huge weight uh to pull back yeah but yeah the one thing to add there is that because it was quite rough you know, the, the sea state was quite rough that night. Was that, you know, that was a real feat. To, you know, it might sound quite simple. You just pull a, a blow back. No. But when the bell is moving up and down, you know, it, you become like twice as heavy because it's going away from you. So you suddenly become really, really heavy well, as soon yeah. as the bell moves up. So not only have you just gone really heavy, you, you, the bloke, as in Chris in this instance, has also gone really heavy, and that you, you've got to get them back into the into the diving bell. And that, I've, yeah, like Chris just said, there's a lot of people may not have managed that. That, that is a real. That was tough. Yeah, and I mean, just sorry, Mark, just to add to that quickly before we carry on, but you know, it's it's one of those things that the the nature of you know the world we live in is that people want to talk talk to me most of the time, you know, because I was a sort of the the damsel in distress, if you like, but that really is what I was, you know, there's kind words being written by people watching, but you know, at the end of the day, I didn't really do anything. You know, I just, I lay there and I got very, very lucky. And, um, you know, they're the real heroes in this story. Are the people who came to get me there, you know, the, the, the calmness of the crew, but yeah, none more than, than Dave who put in that, that effort. That, uh, was, well, Emma, Emma would like me to, uh, Emma would like me to interview Dave. So perhaps one yeah, day. Should. Should. Yeah. I'd love to, I'd really love interesting to, guy. Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to meet Dave and have a chat with him. Um, certainly about the whole thing. Um, so anyway, they get you back into the belt. There you are. You put you back into the bell. You're a dead guy. Um, you know, they get you in there. Take uh, Duncan's like, you know, your sat daddy. He's emotional. He's, he's involved. You know, uh, he takes all your gear off. You know, and and you, there you are. Um, uh, you know, exposed back to a breathable environment. I guess is the way you, you put that. Um, and he gives you two, you know, two quick, two quick kisses of life. You know, blast a bit of uh, his his oxygen into you. Um, explain that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't remember it at all, but it's, um, yeah, apparently, he, exactly as you described, really, he sort of pulls, I get pulled, uh, Dave guides me into the diving bell. We, um, as, once I'm inside the, uh, what we call the trunking, which is basically a, 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 a round circle at the bottom of the bell, Dave Dave can't get in past me, I'm blocking the way in, so he's sort of, he's helpless outside waiting, and uh, Duncan has um, an unconscious head, basically, sitting just above the water that's apparently lolling forward all the time, and he had great difficulty in just just, just maintaining my airway and keeping my, my neck up while he got my, my helmet off and stuff. But yeah, apparently he literally just gave me two, two rescue breaths and he describes it as a, a massive exhalation. So, I, you know, instead of a coming around gently, I, I went, you know, 
uh, which you know, uh, you know, I've been out to talk with the Royal Medical Society in London and places like that, and you know, trying to get answers, I suppose. And they, you know, they said there may have been a block, you know, have, you know, maybe the tongue being unblocked from my esophagus and, and reopening the airway or something like that. But yeah, essentially, I come round straight away with you know a, a rescue, a miraculous rescue breath and. For me, it was a sort of foggy moments, like um, a gradual awakening, you know, being horribly drunk or something like that, and uh, coming around slowly but surely. But, you know, eventually I'm actually able to climb back into the bell myself, you know, under my own steam. I think slightly oblivious to what has happened, you know, just sit down in my chair and ask yeah. people to take my gear off, you know. Yeah, yeah, remarkable, really. There's an amazing moment where George's, you know, colleague or, you know, the, the, the equivalent, you know, the dive supervisor kind of like comes over the radio and says, uh, Chris, you all right, mate? And it's just this little, you just go. Yeah. You know, I'm all right. I mean, it's just, yeah. it, it just, it blows your mind when you watch the film. You're like, unbelievable. I don't think I, I don't think I appreciated then, you know, maybe the magnitude of what had happened really, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, I've been unconscious for most of this. So you, I don't think I really, you know, I remember, I remember seeing Dave crumpled in the corner of the bell exhausted and thinking, you know, what's, what's wrong with him? You know, uh, you know, strange moments, you know, uh, I think, well, you know, as we were coming back up and I was starting to come around and, you know, I knew someone was, a, I remember sort of reaching across and giving their hands a squeeze, you know, knowing that something had happened, but yeah, very vague sort of memories of all that really. I think yeah. um, you, sorry, one thing is that you know you, you've got a, a, a ship with over a hundred crew, uh, you know, hundred and ten whatever crew, uh, and everyone is on board to put those divers on the seabed. So every department, whether it's the bridge, the life support crew, the dive supervisors, ROV department, you know, even the deck, everyone is affected by what happens. So. It's a massive. Everyone plays a massive part in those in get putting those divers on the seabed. Well, the whole crew is. That's what the boat is there for. It's a diving support boat. So everyone is employed to put divers on the seabed. Whether you cook the food or whether you you know clean the cabins or, or whatever, you, you all play an integral part. Um, so the the bridge have had a problem. They're affected by ROV is affected because they find Chris and obviously. As a supervisor, I can only begin to imagine what it was like in dive control. You know, where yeah. everything is run. That's basically the nerve, you know, the heart of the ship. Um, would have been, you know, that would have been some, you know, that would have been effect, uh, affecting everyone. Uh, and, lo- and long ter- long term as well, George, wouldn't it? You know, if, if the outcome had been different, you know, that would have had an impact on everybody's career, on the company, on. You know, not notwithstanding watching, you know, effectively sitting there and watching somebody die for, you know, for forty minutes on a screen, which is what they all had to go through. Um, yeah, it would have it would have had far-reaching implications for everybody involved, wouldn't it? I think. Yeah, and especially, well, every, everyone. I don't think anyone's less important. Hmm. But uh, as a supervisor, no. Well, I, yeah. I, who knows how you deal with those things? You know, Craig. Yeah. You know, it's it's a big deal, obviously. I love the fact there's a great moment where Dave, when Dave, who who is um, you know notoriously unemotional across, and certainly in the film, as you say, is is a bit of poetic license. Uh, but he says like he gets back into the bell, and he looks at you know he thinks he's put a dead guy in there, and he gets back to the bell, and he looks at, he looks across, and he goes, "I look at Chris, he's definitely not dead." <laughs> Just no matter of fact. 
I think he describes it. I can't. I can't remember if it's in last in Last Breath or in another film or, or the other the previous one or, or both. I can't remember. He describes it as um, you know being a little bit upset with me on the way back up. You know, he, he says you know like he'd lost his you know, your kids have wandered off and uh, you know you're, you're glad to you're glad to have gotten back, but you're upset with it, upset with they put you through that. You know. I think he was a bit. I think he was a bit pissed off with you, wasn't he, for putting him yeah, in that right, situation. <laughs> so, so I do want to touch on. I mean, I've, kind of, we've jumped ahead a little bit. Um, uh, there's the really important part. You're right, George. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, no jokes about that. Um, but, uh, especially as I'm about to come on to that. Um, I want to. I want to say Bob Fleming here. That's the fast show. Anyway, so um, so. You know, essentially, I know you didn't die, Chris, right? Clearly, because you're in front of me, right? Uh, and I know that, you know, he put two, he put two breaths into you and kind of came round and everything else. But, you know, people talk about death and dying and this, you know, we have to, we have to touch on this. And I, I want to touch on it because, you know, nobody, nobody knows what death's like. Nobody knows. No one knows, you know, you know, no one can come back and tell us necessarily. Um, you've been about as near, <laughs> you know, you've been about as near as anyone that I know, right? Um, you know, people talk about life flashing before their eyes and, and, you know, all this kind of stuff when people talk about these kind of like, you know, potentially near-death experiences. Um, you know, I, I remember Emma said, uh, you know, did, did you speak to God? Or, or certainly something about, I know you talked about in the film about, you know, your house, you know, you, were, you had a sense of loss about your house being not being built and, not being able to marry Morag and, and all this other, you know, I mean, give us a bit more of a sense of really, you know, just for people watching, you know, what went on in, what went in your, what, what went on in your mind before you actually, you know, passed out and you didn't know anymore? Yeah, it's a strange one because, yeah, you're right. You, you know, as you said, I, I didn't die. So I'm always conscious. That I don't want to be melodramatic about it and make out that I, I suffered in some way that I, that I didn't because there are people every day who are given, you know, notional death sentences, if you like, through, you know, cancer diagnosis and things like that. But it's obviously, I suppose, a slightly un unusual set of circumstances and that, 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 you know, what I thought at a time was going to be yeah. my end was going to be so close at hand, you know, that I was maybe, you know, four or five minutes away from from that being it. And, um, yes, yeah, uh, sort of you touched on it there, really. It's, uh, I don't remember feeling very angry or frightened particularly, but just massively massively sad and you know grief stricken really and um um and also completely bemused and and not really understanding how this was possible that you know how would i found myself in this desolate lonely place and how was this going to be the place that i that i died and um yeah i mean naturally i, I think we'd all be the same that we we think of we think of the people at home and the people we love and uh, and the lives we have ahead of us you know i was at a you know, relatively young age i was you know 30 or something like that, 32, 33, and that stage in life where things, you know, big things are happening. And you know, like you said, I was, you know, I was getting married the following year, and um, you know, we we're in the process of building the house, and you know, you've got your whole life ahead of you, haven't you? And um, to, to 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 be there in those moments and have the time to contemplate having that all taken away from you was um, was 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 just very 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 sad. And um, yeah, I remember feeling mostly sadness for those at home. You know, the the you know the thought of your Beyonce being told of your of your mother being told your father being being given that news and and you know the destruction and stupid stuff like you know oh god what have I what what message have I got on my mobile phone that people shouldn't see you know important things like that <laughs> but you know what I mean it's it's uh, it's bizarre and um, yeah it's a lot it felt like a lot of time to reflect uh, on 
and things like that and and the immense damage you're going to do and uh, i can remember i can't remember if i said that in the film or not but i can remember calling out in the darkness you know almost screaming apologies to, to morag you know I'm, I'm so sorry i'm so sorry for for being selfish and you know selfish enough to put myself in this this position you know there's a there's a choice in being a diver isn't there as george knows you know that's a you know we all wonder why we do it we do it do we do it for money do we do it because there's a little bit of danger involved do we want to go home and say we're a diver you know there's, there's probably an element of all those things and you know it's a career path that takes you away from home and you know you, you like to think you're doing it for your family but there's an element of selfishness about it i suppose and so i remember thinking thinking a bit about that and um and i can also remember calling out duncan's name which didn't make any sense because it would have been you know would have been dave coming to get me but i think the role he played in my career at that point and the fact that he dug me out of quite a few holes before uh you know i can remember ple- i was pleading with him to drop out and you know drop out of the darkness and save me like he always did sort of thing so yeah i mean you know like i said i don't like to dwell on them too much and um i appreciate, I appreciate no, no, not, not for not for personal reasons it doesn't really bother me that much but i don't like to like I said, I don't like to make out, but it's more than it more than it was, you know. Because as you said, like, I'm sat here perfectly healthy in front of you, you know. So, uh, but yeah, very, very strange grief, you know, grief. Let's say grief stricken moments. Yeah, there's an interesting point, and I really do appreciate you sharing there. Of course, no, 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 uh, no. I, I think that's uh, I think that's so important. Um, uh, Pete's just coming with a really great question as well, which I'll come back to. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, basically, no side effects. You know, it's just like just wow. Chris. No one's well, been brave enough to tell me otherwise, you know what I mean? So, so no, no, physical, <laughs> no, physical, no physical side effects. Um, this is a great question from Pete, and then I'll come on, I want to come on to Stuart, the medic, at the end of the film. Uh, Pete, Pete's come in and said, um, Chris, how have you personally changed since? That's quite a good question. Well, it's not a question. It's a very good question, actually. Yeah. I guess I get asked that a lot, but we've, we, in some ways we've covered it, really, in that... Um, you know, people often want to know if you've had some kind of epiphany, you know, do I get out up each day, you know, thinking this could be my last, I'm going to make the most of it, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, the, the, the sort of slightly dull truth is that no, I, no, I don't think I have. You know, I don't, I don't think, I, I'd like to think I was a little bit like that before. Um, but as I said, we, we sort of had this strange euphoria of, of getting through it, the three of us, and um, in, a, in, a, in a strange way, it's been a positive experience in my life. You know, it's opened a lot of, opportunities we've done a lot of things that would never have never done otherwise and even on a professional front it's sort of given me a confidence that perhaps i didn't have up before because you know we extricated ourselves i say we they extricated me from a assist you know a, a position that might have seemed impossible so that in itself was sort of confidence building but yeah i mean at the end of the day the truth is, is that life just goes on doesn't it you know you still have to you know as i say you still have to go and buy the milk on a wednesday and put the bins out yeah. and stuff like that and life soon takes over and you know it's not a, it's not a it's not a melodrama it's not a hollywood film it you know life goes on um i would say the only the only reason the only way i have changed i would think is uh, you know as i perhaps do have a slightly more acute awareness of death i suppose you know i do uh, maybe as you touched upon them i don't know what it's like to die but i have maybe have a little insight as to what it might be and it wasn't a frightening one particularly it was a calm moments falling into unconsciousness yeah. if you like but, you know, so sorry, yeah sorry. so that, that's really interesting that calmness that calmness, you know, before you fell into the unconsciousness. And, and then Stuart at the end, Stuart the medic, uh, the, the, the ship medic, uh, the diver medic, I should say, actually. Uh, and he, um, he, he was like, I can't, I've never seen anything like this before in my life. I cannot believe that he's just like been down there for like 20, 25, you know, whatever minutes without oxygen, essentially, and has lived. And we'll, we'll touch on the reasons that you guys all believe. And then we want to talk a little bit about the safety aspects as well, about what was learned. 
but the bit about the the fact that um Stuart said, like, I can't believe that I'm going to put him in this little bed, warm him up a little bit, you know, stick a tea cosy on his head. Um, and he's uh, and he's basically going to be all right. It was like mind blowing, you know, absolutely mind blowing that that happens. Um, and then, you know, I think that you reached over to him. He was leaning over to take your temperature or do something. And you just like you just touched his arm and just said, you know, it's, it's all right. You know, you know. It's almost like, and, and Stuart, took that, so Stuart took that to mean that, um, you know, you said oh, I was sad, I was a bit cold, and then I, it was just like falling asleep, basically. I just went into unconsciousness, um, which is kind of what you've said to us there anyway. Um, but, um, you know, was that what you meant to Stuart? I mean, or did Stuart just read into that? Well, yeah, that's, that's quite a difficult question. Stu is a, a very nice guy, yeah. Um, I have a lot of respect for him. Um, I'll tell you a little story about that very scene, in fact, in the film. So, between us, yeah, you know, the majority of the, the footage in the film is the real thing, you know. But that footage of Stu and I uh, doing that scene, well, that's, that's a recreation. So we went on board the topaz and we re recreated that for the cameras. And when we were asked to do that, I was sort of laughing and joking about it because the truth is I have no memory at all of, of saying that. You know, if Stu says I did, I 100% did because, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he's not the type to make something like that up. Um, and I remember sort of almost mock, mocking the situation and being a bit silly about it. And then uh, then I watched the film, you know, and then you and you watched you get very, you know, emotional emotional about that. And, um, you know, you realise it, it meant something to him. So I felt, yeah, I felt pretty guilty about having <laughs> made light of it at the time. But, yeah, that, you know, that... Um, yeah, I, I mean, I get people. I get people get in touch with me all the time. And often they are. I've had a lot of. It sounds terrible. <laughs> widows get in touch with me quite a lot. You know, people who've lost somebody they love, and to ask, you know, what is it? What is it like to die? And you feel slightly guilty trying to give them an answer. But you know, sometimes I, I, I'm able to, and that gives them a, a kind of comfort, which is nice. But yeah, I, I think we touched on it earlier that you know the the what is most striking about that is the effect that something traumatic can have on other people. You know, so Stu, you know involved in not directly necessarily but it had you know it's, it's something that can make a very stoic Inverness lad you know uh, bring, bring a tear to his eye and that was the case for a lot of people on board so um, it was it's slightly humbling I, I, I realised maybe that we were uh, I was slightly we perhaps were slightly flippant about things at the time and in a weird way making the film has opened my eyes a little bit more as to the the magnitude of it and also you know that it's not it's not all about you, you know. There, there, there were a lot of people involved, as George described, you know, and uh, and um, it had as much effect on them as it did us, yeah. And you're now a public speaker as well. You do go out and, and talk about this experience from time to time. And, yeah, I mean, you know, within reason. But no, you do go out and you do, obviously we're doing this tonight, but you have given yeah. talks to people around the country and stuff about, about the incident, right? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's not something I sort of actively uh, pursue, but um, and my work's not really conducive to, to, to sort of committing to stuff. But yeah, it's, it's that's something I quite enjoy doing, to be honest. And um, people, you know, people regularly sort of come to me and ask me to, to do those sorts of things. And it's, um, you know, it's nice to pass on the message. And the bottom line is it's a story people like to hear. And it's and it's also a, it's a story, a good story with a happy ending, isn't it? Which we don't, we don't get that much of these days. So um, yeah. it's it's not just a story it's a world and that's I think that's also why the film works is that it's a, it's a world people don't know too much about and um, you know the, the film sort of gives them an insight and hopefully I can do the same yeah. when I want to speak to them yeah no, no listen 100% um, I think that's that's really wonderful um, 
we have to talk about the outcomes as well, of course. And and uh, I know Kev's got a, a few questions as well. Um, one of the um, one of the questions that, that Emma actually put on my sheet, my two pages of notes here, is uh, <laughs> so basically you went back into the water, didn't you? You went back into the water like three weeks later after this incident. So they, you must have been checked over. They said you're fine, and you just went straight back to work. Yeah. Well. Yeah. 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 They did. I mean, it, it was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's a funny one, I and mean, again, that's hindsight, isn't it? And uh, you know, I'm a bit older in the tooth now. They were everybody was great. They were very supportive. We were given the option to go back. Um, the the HSE closes down for three weeks, so we were sort of given the opportunity to go back on the first rotation back, and we went back to the to the same place. And um, yeah, we sort of we all jumped on the opportunity really, but the, that was purely because you know my it's such a competitive industry, and I was. You know, I thought well, this 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 might be career over for me. You know, so to be given the opportunity to go back, uh, I I, th- I kind of felt I had to take it. And at the end of the day, it's my it's my job. It's how I pay my mortgage. And um, you know, what you're going to do? You're going to say, oh, no, I'm not going back. And you know, people say you could have could you sued? I suppose you know, and 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 made some claim. But that's just at the end of the day, I, that would have for me that would have been fraudulent. You know, I I'm a, I was extremely lucky to suffer no injury, and I don't feel any sort of psychological damage. So, so why would I? I suppose. But yeah, the company were great, and you know, um, I see George laughing <laughs> a minute ago. But that, that's true, isn't it? You know, it was in their interest that I went back as well. Obviously, as soon as I'm back diving, then you know, Chris is okay, and uh, we can all move on. You were lying under it. <laughs> a potentially legally difficult situation. Yeah. So um, yeah, but that's that's you know that's probably maybe to do some of a disservice there. They were great, and it was entirely my doing. You know, I did. I, I, I never even considered not going back. Really, yeah. Well, good for you, mate. I think that's really strong. And as far as the outcomes go, Kev, you got a couple of questions you want to fire in? Yeah. Well, and going, just going back to when you got back in the water the next time. There's a, there's a, there's a statement at the end of the movie that says, "Don't fuck it up this time, Chris." Hmm. All right. <laughs> did that actually? Happen? I, I must tell you something. Chris has already told me that off camera. But Chris, I, I think you should share that if you're happy to. Does that does that actually happen? <laughs> yeah, no. So that's that's a moment of recreation. Yes, yeah, so, no, I don't. I don't. Well, I don't think those exact words were used. No, think okay. so. there was there was definitely when we went back. There was a lot of piss taking. That's no, that's not beat around the bush. You know, they were making me lie on the seabed to test beacons and things like that. And there was lots of giggling in the background, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's what made it easy. You know, we all made we all laughed and joked about it all the way through. And that's that's what people do, isn't it? And, um, but yeah, when I um, no, when I first saw a draft of the film, uh, I was on holiday away with with Morag uh, and somewhere, and uh, they sent us a sort of rough copy of it. And you know, two things: there only you get when you if you ever get the opportunity to watch a film about yourself, which you know, <laughs> in some ways I hope you don't, you know. Um, but it's it's you're hypersensitive to everything that that you watch. You know, you're constantly do I sound like a prick? Do I sound like a prick? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's you know that's, that's the truth of it. It's very very selfish the first watching. But there's two things struck us at the end. Both of us sat there first of all and said, "Dave has been misrepresented." That was our you know, and I, and I, re- I really the people who made the film uh, you know become friends. You know, I'm not knocking them, but that was uh, that was our first instinct. And the second was, I hate that line at the end. Yeah, I hate the line at the end because it, there's an inference in that that I did I did fuck up the first time, isn't there? You know, which we've touched yeah. upon a bit. And actually, you know, you know, look at it. That just pulled a pulled a cord in me that was you know there was because there's perhaps some truth in it you know um but yeah i've i've, I've since so, so yeah I don't, I don't i don't think that was a real thing that happened you know i don't think anybody said that as i dropped down but it was um yeah i've, I've come to you know i like i've been to see it in cinemas and everyone laughs at that way when i laugh and it's you know i've brushed it off it's fine you know <laughs> but i think um, you know basically offshore life and particularly on a diving 
well, actually, on it would be on it's on rigs and everywhere. But yeah. you know, pretty much from the moment you set foot on board, the piss take is real. <laughs> so you know, it doesn't yeah. stop. Uh, and the fact that you nearly died, you are still going to get rinsed for it. So it's, an, it's an absolute. It's an absolute That's more ammunition. To this day, I would, say, I would say that's the way that a lot of people will handle it. It's like it's actually a way for them to handle it. It's like a coping mechanism because yeah. nobody wanted to watch you pass away in front of their very eyes. You know, what I mean, nobody wanted that. You know, and as you say, the outcome would have been so horrible for you for everybody you know you know traumatized you know career you know not ending but you know people t oh you were on that ship and blah blah all that kind of stuff you know so you're going to deal with it however best you can and if you can make light of it in, in that kind of way and like oh chris yeah that, you know come on chris you know so you see and, and that kind of take yeah, it's yeah. taken i think it is what it is That's what we do. Yeah. it doesn't matter how serious the incident is and obviously someone nearly dying is pretty serious um, you know, it's not 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 a good outcome to a, to a shift. The office, you know, as <laughs> you lived. So we just get over it, and we. Yeah. What, you, what, you, what you're complaining about? You're still here, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Not, not going on about it. <laughs> I mean, the one the one place. I mean, exactly. You know, it's, this is why. Again, it's quite strange doing this with George because I do. You know, I do this kind of thing a lot, and people are always like, ah, oh, you know give you a lot of sympathy and all this kind of thing. And, uh, but the one place you get no sympathy and, 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 and you know, but that's the truth, isn't it? That's, that's where the truth lies is the people who know the one place, you. The one place you, you get no... They realise you didn't do fuck all, you know, and just lay there. <laughs> the, one, the, one, the one place lazy, you get no... Lazy. <laughs> the, one, the one place you get no sympathy is on straight talking. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. First and last time, by the way, Mark, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> all, all the gags on there, Chris, of, oh, you know, he's always laying down on the job and all... all. Yeah. Anything, yeah, anything, yeah. To, anything to cut yeah. a bell run short, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 Do anything to get out of a dive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is which is true. Yeah, so you can't knock that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so further, further outcomes. I mean, further outcomes. Has there been any safety changes? Is there anything that the HSE recommended? Is there anything that the companies have, have, have adopted? But that's anything different? That, the incident was 2012, right? No. You know, nothing. I mean, obviously, well, no, essentially not. I mean, we, we, we work there. Uh, in a, in a I was say yes. <laughs> no, but that's, no, essentially not. I mean, obviously, the, the vessel had to go through a, an awful lot of testing, and there's systems being put in place to, you know, a lot of modifications made to the DP system to stop this from happening again. And it, and it and it's been, you know, if you think that boat more often than not is working 24 hours a day, you know, there hasn't been any issues. Um. You know, obviously, it highlights certain things. Of, you know, umbilical management, which Chris touched on earlier. All these different things, but you know, I wouldn't say it really changed because we already work in a mm. mostly and on most boats. Not, you know, I'm just generalising, but we there's so much procedure in place in, in, to work in the North Sea. You know, and we. It's a managed risk. Obviously, putting your head underwater is about as dangerous as it can be, and do it 100 metres down where you can't come up is, is obviously dangerous. So the job is inherently dangerous. But there's a lot of procedure, or the whole thing is procedure-based, mm -hmm. and it's a managed risk. So, you know, something you know about health and safety. Yeah. So it's a managed risk, and it's probably... I mean, it's probably no... It's not more dangerous than working on a building site because we make it that way because we do things in a safe way. Uh, so, 
but there wouldn't have been a huge amount of lessons learned from it from a diving point of view because we already work safely. I mean, you know, in, in many ways, in many ways, there was a lot of there was a lot of bad luck for it to happen. You know, for all of these things that they call it like the Swiss cheese model when everything lines up. I mean, there was like you know the failure of the of the DP. There was like the, the fact that, that everything shifted two hundred fifty meters that way. The fact that the bell when it went over the structure you got caught on the structure I mean the whole thing is just like that's catastrophic in bad luck and then there's a lot of good luck as well there's a lot of other great outcomes as in you found the manifold you got onto the top they managed to get back to you it wasn't like an hour and a half before they got back to you it was you know they got back to you as quick as they could uh, Dave managed to get you in yeah all of that I mean all of that is you know, I'm, I'm not a big believer in luck, if I'm honest. I, luck is a word I don't use very often. But in this particular instance, I, I genuinely think that there's a there's a case for it because ultimately there's so many things that went a certain way that could have gone otherwise. I mean, to, to be honest, if, if I just put the whole thing as far as what happened to Chris down, it's just bloody unlucky because had he been one metre over, mm-hmm. you know, he would have gone up the same direction that Dave did. You know, so, you know, that's just bloody unlucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rest of it, obviously, is, is just, you know, is a terrible thing to happen. I don't think it's just unlucky. I really do. It's, it, it's you know, Ultimately, the shit. Go on, the shit. Chris. Yeah, no, go sorry. on, Chris. No, no, sorry, George, I'm interrupting. Big one. Go on, carry on. Yeah, I mean, the ship breaking, let's just say it broke down. I mean, no one could ever ever have foreseen that. There's nothing you could have put in place to stop that happening because in theory it couldn't happen but it did happen and the outcome of it for Chris was just bloody bad luck. It, it really is and I don't think there's there's not a lot of things you could put in place to stop that from happening because it, it just had a chain of events that were going to run its course, you know. Mm. Cool, I was going to say, I think ultimately, what George is saying is that ultimately, from our point of view, from the diving point of view, the diving community on the boat, it was, it was almost a success story, wasn't it? Because what went wrong was, you know, you sort of mentioned the Swiss cheese thing, but I'm not quite sure it was that. It was really was a single point. One thing went wrong. You know, one thing went wrong. This computer system had a catastrophic single point failure. But beyond that, everything that came afterwards, you know, the procedures, the, dr- the drills that we'd done, the chain of command, everything clicked into place really very effectively. And, you know, it's really striking when you listen to the audio back from the from dive control and from the bridge and things like that, how serenely calm everybody is in what must have been an extraordinarily tense situation in, in, in executing what was ultimately a successful rescue of, you know, the, uh, the stricken diver, basically. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's not to say that we're complacent, is it, George? And I think, you know, we definitely learned, definitely learned a lot of stuff that night and a lot of the stuff we learned were, and I often say to people that we, we learned lots of little things that night in doing the, in doing the rescue. So to give you stupid examples, Dave, when he was pulling me back, he, he couldn't find any grab handles to pull me back onto the stage underneath the bell. Uh, Duncan couldn't put his hand on knives to cut, to cut my stuff off you know so but what we really learned from all of that was that you know we perhaps hadn't been as real, realistic in the in the drills that we do so um, you know we, we do diver rescue drills all the time and you know realistic re, in reality we probably should have learned these lessons before the night 
but we perhaps hadn't because we weren't doing as drills as realistically as we as we should do you know so stuff like that so maybe a slight a slight cultural shift in the way we do we do things um and we've also you know we've also moved on to or tried to move on to rebreathers on the boat haven't we to sort of a a different supply of emergency gas which should give you a bit longer so we've learned we learned little things and adjusted things but yeah as george said fundamentally it was extraordinarily bad luck and it's diff- very difficult I mean, I've never, I would never suggest that we won't try to mitigate against something like that because everything we do, isn't it, George, is hugely risk assessed. You know, you can't climb a set, set stairs on the on the boat without that being risk assessed. So we do everything we can at all times to to try and you know cover ourselves. But yeah, sometimes something you, just you, you also had some great footage of you on the boat, and I'm guessing it just wasn't just from this one trip. I'm sure it was, you know you're doing like selfies outside the the captain's uh, thing, and you 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 obviously done a lot of footage of you on the boat showing inside the. Uh, uh, inside the chambers and everything else. So you, the film was actually very well put together with a lot of information of you, you know, up close and yeah. personal, if you like. Well, that's that was again. That's a bit of, right. So I'll let you in on the on the cinematic secret there. So they uh, they sort of made out that I send videos home to Morag all the time. That's that's just not true, you know. Never, just not in my nature, you know. So they had this they had this slight problem. They made the decision to hold me back in the film, so they don't, you know, those who get to see it. I do, I do survive. You know, if you haven't seen it, I do make it. But they don't reveal that until about well, you know two thirds of the way through the film, do they? So they had to find a way of you getting to know me, I suppose. So we faked a lot of that. So all that is a bit, yeah, me going around the wall, you know, captain's cabin, all that kind of thing. It's just all, yeah, it's all bullshit. They, they, even, they even kind of, um, they forced the language for the first half, at least, to say that you, you know, to allude to that you didn't make it. Mm. Sorry, sorry, Kevin, big one. So I, I found that quite strange, you know. Um, it, it was, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So did I. It jarred when I saw it, but you know, I thought there's just no way people are going to buy that I, I haven't made it, and people are going to cotton on. But people do, do seem yeah. to go when I walk out. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, they, they yeah. A lot about the film, we sort of realise. You know, you come to learn why they did it, and they, you know, they're actually quite good at what they do. Yeah. Well, wouldn't, it have, wouldn't it have been a fairly crap film if you knew that you survived like within the first couple of minutes for yeah. anyone that's never seen it? Yeah, it's called Jeopardy. It's called Jeopardy, and then and the Jeopardy at the end of the day, the Jeopardy is there all the way through until they go on the black screen. uh, When uh, I think it might be Duncan, uh, they go on the black screen, and then you know, is he is he isn't he dead type stuff, and and then they cut to Chris, and Chris walks in and sits down, and they put a bit of and I can see you look embarrassed. They're putting makeup on you, and you're a bit like, oh god, you know, here we go. You know, not not used to being a celebrity. You know what I mean? Love it, loving it to be honest. Yeah, that's all. That's all fake as well. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. Have you got any other questions, Kev? Have you got anything else you want to uh, share? I've got a few people I want to put on the screen uh, who want to say stuff. But um, Kev, you got any other questions? I've only got one more for you. And did did you get the house finished? Yeah, well, well, uh, yeah. Again, so no, I don't know if you can quite see because you know I do zoom. I can only put a fake background up, but on the Mark's thing there, I couldn't. So I'm sat in my mother's bedroom at the moment, which you know, at 41 is a bit disconcerting. But yeah, uh, she. Uh, so we did finish the house, but I've just sold it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm currently living in a caravan about 10 meters that way. Yeah, waiting, to, <laughs> waiting to move somewhere else, which I can't do during lockdown. So yeah, anyway. And, but yes, we did, did, did. We got we got married and we uh, we finished the house and it was all a great yeah, all a very happy end of it. Yeah. <laughs> you um you so yeah you got you got married and you made a bit of a crip at the at the reception afterwards, didn't you? Something about like you know the second best yeah. kiss I've had today or, or, or recent I can't remember exactly what the quote was, but 
Yeah, well, I was in the, so I'm in the, I, I live up in the Highlands, you know, in, in Scotland. And um, uh, I mean, I, when I, because I'm an Englishman and they, you know, generally speaking, you're not popular around here. So I made an effort to, to get involved with the community when I got in, I joined the local Coast Guard, you know. Uh, so the head of the Coast Guard very kindly drove Morag in the blue flashing lights to the, to the wedding, you know. So he was there with us. And at some party, I think I'd given him a kiss on the lips because he, he hates that kind of thing. Yeah, so he was sat next to me. So that was a joke. Yeah, one or two people who'd given me a, a very decent <laughs> on the lips. Yeah. And Duncan, you know, they got a stand innovation, obviously. And yeah, Dave was at work doing the professional years. I did invite him. Yeah, of course he was. Yeah, Dave's, Dave's not been at your wedding. He's the Vulcan. He's spot. He's like, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got more people to say. There's some great, there's some great quotes here. I'm going to, I'm going to put a few up. Um, here we go. So, uh, so someone's just some, someone had to leave, but they said I have to, have to go. But much respect to you all. I feel sick hearing this, and thank goodness you're all safe. I've seen the film through my fingers. Um, so, uh, so I think that might be Julia actually. Uh, so that's amazing. Um, the greatest thing that was uh, the thumbs up that you walked into the chamber uh, when you walked into the chamber through the porthole. Um, uh, yeah, well, Jimmy was there. Jimmy was there. That's why. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Jimmy. Uh, right. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, Gary says, uh, it's lo- I love that um, Chris sees the incident in a positive light now. He's uh, an amazing individual. And obviously, you're part of the top blo- top color blue club that we spoke about on the e-colors earlier. Um, and uh, I would like to- all of that. Yeah. I'd like to talk to you. Uh, thank you. I'd like to talk to you in more detail about that another time as well. But yeah, Gary's a, a top top guy. Uh, Emma's saying, uh, "Keep it together, Wilkes," because she she thought I was going to cry there for a little bit, but I've managed to. <laughs> I've, I've kept it together, Emma. Don't you worry. Um, she also says, "I had no idea about your job and what you actually do, and it's incredible, but not for her." <laughs> yeah, clearly. Yeah. Uh, Diana says, uh, "Truly amazing." Uh, Jason saying, "Truly amazing and gripping insight." And thank you, obviously, particularly uh, to Chris uh, Douglas is saying it's an amazing success story um and michael is saying can't believe how quickly two hours has just gone uh, i agree i second that two hours has just flown by out here and that is something special that you know you're engaged in a conversation and and, and this is four people together sharing lots of insights and enjoying the you know a good two-hour conversation just for you know a few hundred people watching and stuff like that so um it's, it's really great and uh, i really agree uh, and, and sorry, one more from him, uh, uh, Dave. He's double busy. Do you remember the Mickey Flanagan? I am double busy. I am double busy. I've got, I've got to sign on and get back to work. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Dave was too busy to be at your work. Yeah, yeah, tell him, tell him. You've got to sign on and get back to work and, and rescue. He's got to rescue more people. Um, Chris, is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to, you'd like to add? God, you put me on a spot there. Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Anything we haven't covered that, that, that we haven't, we've missed? We haven't it. talked enough about what a great guy I am. But apart from that, yeah. Actually, do you know what? I'd, I'd like to end with this because, yeah, we, we've talked a lot about this. But, you know, since the incident, obviously, you've gone back to diving. You've continued with diving. You're now a dive supervisor. Oh, sorry, you're learning to be, you're studying yeah, to be a diver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Only, only if yours lets me be. Let's be honest. Yeah. What is it? So you're studying to be a dive supervisor for the future, and I think you know if George lets you, you'd be bloody good at it. Um, and uh, and and so and what else do you do for for you know good times? And and what are you? What do you get out of life? And and where's the future for you? Oh, I know this cue. I listen to music. 
particularly music from the 90s, you know, in the dance dance era, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, well, I, what's happening with me? I don't know. I'm, um, he's not looking. He's not looking. Come on, Chris. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah sorry. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah. I'm in the midst of reading that, that's for sure, yeah. <laughs> it's it's really good, by the way. Thank you. Um, what's, uh, yeah, well, like, so, yeah, I've, uh, I've taken a decision to stop, to try, to, to try and stop diving anyway, and um, literally in the last sort of uh, six weeks, I've, I've, uh, I've started doing this sort of a training that takes about a year and a half under the tutelage of people like George at work um, to, to try and take that role on, which is, as George touched upon, I think, um, you know, massively demanding and uh, a job. And this one, I don't know if, you know, I don't, you know, really till I get into the thick of it where I'll be, you know, capable, full stop, you know. Um, it's, it's a really difficult place, spinning job. And, um, you know, George maybe downplays it a little bit, but, you know, you should have every respect for anybody who does that because it's a very, a very difficult thing to do. So, yeah, I, I'm hoping to, to, to go down that path wherever it works out or not, we'll see. Um, we've, uh, we're hoping to move to France as a family. That's our sort of uh, our big dream, uh, life dream, if you like, is we're hoping to uh, decamp and move over there. So that's the, the caravan and the, and the big move, you know. But, um, yeah, apart from that, just um, just try and try and be happy and um, yeah, get through life as best I can, I suppose, same as everyone else. Oh, bless you, mate. It's amazing. Uh, there's a couple more. Michelle's just saying uh, the lesson here is when life gives you lemons. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. Very good. Very good. And uh, uh, I think I might leave the last word here to, to Emma, certainly. The last word on the last breath. Um, uh, actually, the last word of this will probably be with Kev, actually, because it says, uh, Chris, you're so humble and I'm so glad it was a, it was a good end. Yeah, we're so, we are really grateful for you being here, Chris, and thank you for sharing. Uh, lots of people have, have, have loved this tonight. Um, and uh, and Kev, can you believe you're sitting having a chat with these guys after? No. <laughs> well, definitely changed my perspective on the law of attraction, Mark. I'm a bit more of a believer, let's just say. Well, this is it, because ultimately you sent me a message, or so you told me on a call. I watched it. I made a couple of calls, and unbelievable. And here we are talking to a guy who survived, you know, a really a really challenging, you know, industrial accident, you know, a real moment. So, so look, I just want to say, uh, you know, real thanks to you all and thanks to everyone for being here. I think it's been utterly fascinating. I think, Chris, there's so much that we can take from this story. Uh, your absolute honesty, uh, you know, your, your um, gallows humour when you need it, uh, you know, and the fact that the team you know, the whole team, you know, rallied round and, and actually, you know, it wasn't just like a, a one-man story and, and, you know, it was it was so much more than that. Uh, and I love the fact that, that you know, they were so uh, able to get back to you and, and actually, you know, get you out of there and, and, and get you back onto, uh, into reality, if you like, you know. And uh, the, fact, the fact that you didn't suffer any injuries as well, I mean, you know, um, yeah, wonderful, mate. Really, really wonderful. Well, before we go, yeah, thank you very much indeed for, for having me, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. It's always lovely to talk to lovely people. I'll even include George in that, you know. So, uh, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. And thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, it's been a, been a treat. So, thank you. No, brilliant. And uh, George and Kev, uh, yeah, lads, listen, I really appreciate your input into this as well. It's been uh, it's been utterly fascinating. Uh, and, uh, you know, I love all the angles. I love all the thought that's gone into it. Uh, it's really special. And do share this, you know, this interview will be up on my YouTube channel. It'll be there. People can watch it forever. Uh, so uh, you know, do share it with your with your friends and family. Uh, we're getting lots of brilliance and lots of amazing comments. So I just want to thank you all, guys. If you would all just stay there for a minute, uh, I'll end the broadcast and then we can have a a quick catch up and everything. But uh, once again, thanks everybody for watching. Really, really appreciate it. Just as a little sideline for you, um, Norman Cook, Fat Boy Slim, uh, sent me a message uh, about an hour before this interview uh, and, said, and said to me, "What time are we? What time are we doing the interview tonight?" Uh, and I said, I said, what are you talking about? 
Norman Cook, Fat Boy Slim. I said, what, what are you talking about? I asked you and you weren't available. So I, I went for the B team. I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, I went for the B team and I got Kevin George and this other fella, Chris. Uh, and, and here we are. And I've got this message of Fat Boy Slim. And so if for anyone watching, uh, massive love and respect to all three of you, of course. And Norman Cook will be joining me on June the 16th for uh, another special straight talking. So that's going to be another fascinating evening. So, hey, listen. We're all people. We're all doing our job. We're all doing good things in the world. Um, I've got nothing but love and respect for you three. Stay where you are, chaps, uh, and I'll say good night to everyone. Good night, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Life remixed. With Mark Wilkinson. Hi, it's Mark Wilkinson here, author of Life Remixed. Are you currently feeling stuck in your life with nowhere to go? Then it's definitely time to remix your life. The book is out now on Amazon across the world. It's been endorsed by Bob Proctor and Marcy Scheimer from The Secret, as well as some wonderful, wonderful people. You can also log on to markwilkinsonofficial.com, sign up, stay updated. We can help you take control of your life. Big, big love. Life Remixed.